0: DOCM OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So for hockey fans, big day yesterday, opening day of the regular season for this year's NHL Hockey, and so a lot of eyeballs would be on Connor Bedard, the Chicago Blackhawk forward. First overall pick, 18 years of age, looked good, had an assist in a 4-2 win, five shots on net. And curiously, the NHL's had an entry draft since 1963, and since then, only 12 players who were first overall scored in the regular season debut. Bedard did not crack that list. And of course, big one tonight for a lot of the local fans, Montreal and Toronto fans. Montreal Toronto tonight, got to like it. Alex Noe kicks off his Montreal Canadiens regular season career on the local front in the hockey. So the Newfoundland Growlers, of course, winning the Kelly Cup back in 2019. And this year, a pretty interesting announcement of who's their next head coach is going to be, former NHLer uh, Matt Cook. Cook, I'm not going to say he was a dirty player, but I'm not going to say he wasn't. So, Cook, interesting backstory for this guy. He signed down with the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1996. He was undrafted, but signed a contract. The contract didn't get submitted to the league on time, so consequently it was null and void. He then went back into the entry draft the following year, got picked by the Canucks, played for Vancouver, played for Pittsburgh, where he won a Stanley Cup, then he went on to play for Minnesota, and now coaching the Growlers. And, of course, you're not going to be able to coach the way Matt Cook played because the game really isn't the way it was when Cook was out there, slashing and throw around the elbows and the rest of it so anyway welcome Matt Cook Uh, and Adam Pardee Bonavista native of course spent about a decade in the NHL played for the St. John's Icecaps played for the Growlers won won the Kelly Cup back in 19 he's a development coach which is pretty cool And this story is sorta out of nowhere, but pretty cool for the Corner Brook Royals baseball players and their club. They've signed on a guy who's a 20 year veteran as a pitcher. He's a Venezuelan, his name is Enzelbert Soto. And apparently the practices are long, the kids are getting a lot out of it, and apparently quite pleased with his, his presence as a former pro ball player and a lefty too, just like former professional baseball player lefty Frankie Humber from Corner Brook. Anyway, on we go. All right, let's talk staffing. It's just remarkable, looking around in almost every arena, every industry, there's staffing shortages. So let's talk about school. You know, if you have a child in the K-12 system, whether it be some of the really oversized classes that are still in place apparently, and you know, the consequences and the complexities of hiring teachers for some of the more rural parts of the province, especially Labrador. But this story, I'm not really sure the background or the backstory on it. I'll try to figure out more throughout the course of the day. But there was a recent case review, and so the province struck a Child Death Review Committee. They've made recommendations to the Department of Education. The basics of the story is talking about uh, regular and meaningful updates to the health curriculum. The challenges facing the youth of today are vastly different than myself and Jason Murphy here, chief engineer in the studio doing a bit of work this morning. So they're talking about potentially making uh, uh, the permanent mandatory healthy, Healthy Living 1200 You know, we've got to ensure that they're equipped with all the appropriate information to deal with the challenges that they face because those are real, they're omnipresent, and some children may not have the support behind them to have all that kind of information and to acknowledge the red flag, where to go and what to do when and if you're dealing with some of these whopping big issues that the province's youth are dealing with, I guess the country's youth. All right. Staffing. Healthcare. So we know the province is committed to having some 35, whether it be called them collaborative care clinics or family care clinics. There's uh, some 19 uh, family care teams have been announced for to be either fully operational or partially operational. There's plans for Gander and for Lab West. We'll get into some numbers regarding Lab West. One of our listeners, Keith Fitzpatrick, sent along some staffing updates and the presence of healthcare care professionals in Labrador, especially Lab West. We'll get to that in a second. So they've announced the clinic for Grand Falls Windsor. The Kelly clinic will take it on. So they're talking about accommodating 21 staff, two doctors, a nurse practitioner, a physiotherapist, occupational therapist, and a psychologist. And the obvious question being asked is where are the staff? because we've seen the collaborative care uh, clinics pop up here I'm a patient of one here on Monday, dri- Monday pound Drive, Monday Pond Drive, Monday Pond Road here in the city. The issue facing the clinics, though, is unless there's new staffers brought into the fold, we may indeed just be moving healthcare professionals, doctors, and all the way down just from their own private clinic, possibly to one of these family care clinics. They could be obviously very beneficial, no doubt about it. But are we adding to the fold? I read a story this morning that some 200 plus nurses have been recruited internationally. Not all of them co- coming with full registered nurses credentials at this moment in time. Some of them are nurse practitioners, licensed practical nurses, some working towards their accreditation. But where are the staff coming from? And of course, if you hear from Dr. Chris Luscombe, who's the president of the NLMA, they all have na- acknowledge that these are smart plays, smart plans but still going to be the staffing woes. And then look to the fact that they're offering some major signing bonuses for doctors in particular to come work in these clinics, whether it be in Deer Lake or Grand Falls, Windsor. In Grand Falls, Windsor, or Deer Lake, a signing bonus of $200,000. In Labrador, for doctors who establish a practice, we'll get a $300,000 signing bonus. Has that proven to be effective? We know it looked like it was effective, say, for instance, in Bonavista. But is cash the only question being asked of healthcare professionals where and when they want to work? Certainly for some, it's absolutely going to be the the ultimate incentive. But maybe not for all, because if you hear from everyone working in every discipline, it's the complications of the burnout that they're facing. And that's directly related to staffing levels. So there you go. Let's keep going with staffing. This is a fascinating story. So when we talk about the intelligence gathering in the country. And, of course, people refer to CSIS and our membership in the Five Eyes and the allegations of the Indian government's relationship with the assassination of a Sikh leader in B.C., and then Chinese interference in the past couple of elections. And it's not just the past couple, but that's what people are focused on. Now we talk about a potential staffing issue and or potential major staffing crisis, so says a former spy. And this is the group working at the Communications Security Establishment. So they're basically responsible for protecting the federal government's computer network, advising all critical uh, infrastructure operators like banks and hospitals to to protect themselves against cyber attacks. And we know in this province, we've been the victim. The Meditech system was hacked. We still don't know a whole lot about it. But if you look further into the story, they talk about the staffing levels. Staffing has increased, but the problem, so says the former spy, is that it's the top talent that have been poached, top talent that have moved off to the private sector to probably make way more money. But just think about it. We are watching rockets being fired off in Israel and Palestine. We're seeing what's going on in Russia and Ukraine but some of the wars that we don't see being fought every single day and the repeated relentless attacks on the cyber networks, this is it. So for my money, I think we should add cyber defense to actual defense spending, you know, technically make it fall inside of that 2% of GDP envelope. But just imagine, when we are hearing and seeing these stories, and they're happening more and more frequently, I remember we're speaking with Minister Bill Blair on this program, asked him directly about how frequently the federal government is attacked by hackers. And he said all day, every day. So if we have a shortage in that intelligence gathering community and that particular federal agency, that's a pretty big problem. The story also goes on to say that cybersecurity is not just a governmental issue or a banking issue or a hospital issue. It's right across the gamut. It's in water treatment, it's in the electrical grids, it's in private companies, whatever it be hotels, all the way down. But if the competition is as severe as it is for cybersecurity experts, To know that we have a potential crisis in the intelligence gathering community here federally at the communication security establishment, that story is probably bigger than it's going to, uh, than the traction it may or may not get today, but if you want to take it on, we can do it. Because it's not that long ago, remember, when the allegations of Chinese interference and the Chinese police stations and the misinformation and the disinformation campaigns, and yes, the allegations aimed at the Indian government, All of this stuff would have been part of intelligence gathering and dissemination. So there's so many angles we can take on there. But if you want to do it, let's go. All right. Today's a deadline day. So much to the chagrin of some folks, say the Southwest Alliance uh, Organization, and the folks who are asking questions and or are fully in opposition to the wind, hydrogen, ammonia projects proposals, notably World Energy GH2. Their environmental assessment document was upwards of 4,000 pages, much of which was so technologically advanced over my head. So the deadline was today, or is today, for public feedback. Again, to the chagrin, there was no federal assessment triggered. For many, that's a really odd outcome. Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gibo said, no need. The provincial process is all that is required. It does not require any further assessment inside the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. What that would have meant, vastly different than our process, not necessarily the information gathered and understood and questions asked, but there would have been the possibility for intervener status, whether it be the Council of Canadians, Southwest Alliance, or whoever else might be involved in asking further questions. And then with intervener status comes the potential for federal funding to do the research, to bring in so-called, or pardon me, to bring in experts in the field, hydrologists all the way through, engineers, what have you, environmentalists. So if you want to bring it forward. Let's go. This, one of the big questions out there, and environmental concerns have been noted, and we can discuss them, but how quickly will we see the government move forward with the next green light and the final green light? You know, the companies have up to 18 months to do their crown land application and assessment work, but when we now understand a little bit more about what their interaction with the uh, part of the electrical grid might be, Until Hydro comes up with a final assessment or evaluation of additional power capacity, then how can we even move on this? Like if just this proposal itself, for parts of the year, will need access to 150 megawatts, not huge, not massive, but it's about akin to the eighth generating unit at Beta Spare. It's 150 out of the 824 megawatts at Muskrat Falls. So it is a significant enough question that until Hydro, comes up with an answer too, because it's not just these projects that are seeing a uh, supply not meet with demand by the end of this decade. So can there even be green light until we come up with the power-related questions? I'm not so sure. Sticking with industry, good news for the folks working up at at the Scully Mines, Wabush. They have secured creditor protection from the Ontario Superior Court. There's a $75 million deal in place. So. It was closed until 2014 when Decor took over operations. There are significant numbers of people employed. I think some 280 unionized workers at that particular mine. The, oh, pardon me, Decorah took over operations in 2019. So iron ore, remember of federal funding not that long ago to process manganese. I guess the question mining will be, you know, we saw Bayvert be purchased by an Australian junior. And, you know, we talked about floorspar in St. Lawrence. But with the thirst and the appetite for critical minerals, I'm almost a little bit surprised that we haven't heard more applications for mining expansion and or new mining operations. I mean, some of what we see in some of the major conflicts in the world today, armed and otherwise, are basically, you know, gone are the days where those wars were so-called fought regarding oil and access to oil. Critical Minerals has taken over in so far as the diplomatic and the potential armed conflict that we see around the world, which is in some form of upheaval. So we have them. We have all the minerals right here in this country and certainly in Labrador. Vast resources, vast reserves in the Labrador trough. I guess it probably won't be long before we hear some of those announcements, but we can only hope that those announcements for mining operations come with some additional work to tertiary or secondary processing, you know, the whole global supply chain, now that we're all so painfully familiar with in the last number of years. Anyway, you know what to do. A Couple of quickies before we get to your call. So the RNC had a pilot project in place to establish a weapons and drug enforcement unit. Now it's gonna become permanent given the successes they've enjoyed. Trying to get out in front at a proactive approach to curb violence before it occurs. Basically, when you hear from law enforcement, certainly in this province and around the country, drug seizures that used to see the display on the table of the cocaine and the weed and the hash and the papers and the scales and all the rest of it, now virtually every single time you see the same types of drugs, maybe more cocaine than ever, and other drugs that we see illicitly sold on the streets, but now it's weapons. I mean, can you think of the last major drug bust that was not combined with handguns, ghost guns, long guns? So that unit hopefully will be successful in their proactive approach. But to know now that, just say, when we were teenagers, a drug bust was a drug bust. A gun, very seldom did you ever see a firearm associated with a drug bust. Now it's standard, and it's trending in that direction constantly and repeatedly, so says the deputy chief of the RNC, uh, Chief Lagasse. Anyway, last one, before we get to your calls. So for those of you who are inclined, Yesterday began the opportunity to book your seasonal influenza vaccine and or your COVID vaccine. You know, the, ma- the mandates were problematic, to say the very, very least. And they're talking about if you're at high risk or if you haven't had an updated vaccine in the, or had the, uh, had the virus itself in the last six months, and people talk about who would be in the high risk category. So in consultation with your doctor, you'll do it as you see fit. So the vaccines will start to, uh, admi- to be administered beginning uh, next week on the 16th, but the booking is now open. When we talk about the people who are so-called whatever up-to-date formally means these days, only 23.4% of people have received a shot since September 2022. Uptake is bigger amongst older Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So if that's something that interests you, the appointment booking portal is now open. We're on Twitter or VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vosm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That requires your participation, so pick up the phone, get in the queue, and on the air right after this. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Ruby. You're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. Wonderful morning out there.
1: A little bit gray where I'm sitting here on Camelot Road, but not too bad overall.
2: Well, as long as we can keep the, the rain and the white stuff away, might be okay. Farewell. Patty, uh, I'm calling, hopefully, as a follow-up from uh, our rally that we had on August the 23rd, the rally on addiction, mental health and addiction. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we touched on many other subjects as well. Uh, To date, us as a group that were there have not been notified – of when the uh, task committee, or whatever name they might want to put on it, is going to be in place. I understand they've started it. It's nearly six weeks. We have seen none or very little action since. So I'm calling on government now to please inform us as to when this is happening. Like, we we talked about the urgency of a recovery centre. We talked about uh, arm reduction, which I think has stepped up a bit in the city. I don't know uh, about across the province. Uh, We also talked about suitable housing. Uh, And I think it speaks for itself what we're getting for suitable housing just across the street from Confederation Building. Ensuring that the HMP have professional and professional training guards that can help. Have a doctor that's seeing the young people that's going in there with mental health issues and make sure they're properly treated. But most of all, have a safe, decent place to rest your head. And we have not seen... Too much I'm not saying there's nothing done but we've been not informed which was told to me I had two meetings with the ministers I've had follow-up calls with the minister but I have not seen any action or I have not been assured of what action has been taken place so I'm just wondering now if and who is listening, if they can update me as to what so I can update our people that's very concerned. Well, I want to speak briefly, if I can, on the tense situation across the road from Confederation Building. I've been helping out there by bringing clothes, making sure they have clothes or blankets or whatever, But I've also extended that and I've gone to places, downtown and the gathering place and other places, making sure that people who are in the cold has a warm hat and warm mitts, boots and a jacket. I've been gathering up that with help from friends and making sure. That can only go on for so long because the cold weather is coming quicker than we want it to. And sleeping under a tent and a blanket is not going to be good enough. So I I, I urge, whether they have to take a building and turn it into apartments, I don't care what they have to do as long as they get those people off the streets and into a comfortable living. We're not asking for mansions, we're asking for safe shelter And as you know, some of the shelters just got closed down, so they weren't all safe.
1: Well, that's the problem. You just touched on an awful lot of stuff there in a few minutes from mental health and addictions and poverty and housing and harm reduction. And there's a lot to that. You know, it's remarkable to me just how many of the societal ills begin and end with poverty and housing. You know, whether that be mental health, whether it be addictions, whether it be crime and punishment, whether it be health care, it's just unbelievable that the country finds itself in a place where housing is all of a sudden. Now, housing's always been a concern, and there's always been emergency shelters, and there's always been homelessness, but the amount and the exponential growth we've seen, certainly in the metro region here, is staggering so the whole yeah just just on the mercy shelter issue I completely understand the concept of making uh, you know repurposing a government building or vacant homes into a place for people to live the trick there, therein is that if it's simply going to be mimicking or replicating what would have been deemed an emergency shelter and we call it something different and it doesn't have the supports in place and support staff and supervision and monitoring, basically we're just adding to the emergency shelter churn, aren't we? So unless those buildings are set up, like, like I think as you reference it, actual apartments, you know, not barracks, not dorms, not, not what we barracks, see in the emergency shelter no. world because we can't just continue to do what we know is, isn't really working.
2: Well, that's exactly my point. I think it needs to be turned into one bedroom apartment or two, depending on the families. And it needs to be then their responsibility. But when you put 30 beds in an open space and you have a young girl that's gonna get raped tonight if I close my eyes, this can't happen, Patty. And it's happening, it's the real world. It is happening. I talked to a little girl last night. Well, she's not a little girl. She's a little girl in my opinion, but she's 30 years old. She's got mental health issues. She's now over at the tent. She's safe because the people around there are like a family, and they're taking care of each other. But she told me stories, and they've showed me pictures that I've had nightmares myself thinking about it. This can't go on, Patty. Our children, our young people, whether they're 25, whether they're 35, it doesn't matter to me. They are somebody's children. And they have the right to be able to lie down and sleep without having to keep one eye open like you do in a war zone because you're too afraid to sleep. Your things will be stolen or you will get raped. And young young men as well sure by older people and this is this is real patty this is real this is happening every day in our society and especially right now in our city and i have seen more in three weeks in my going out in in outreach and helping than i ever knew was ever possible to take place.
1: Uh, interesting word you use there when talking about these one-bedroom or two-bedroom requirements, whatever is appropriate, is to make it the new tenant's responsibility. Maybe yeah. it's going to have to include some government support, you know, through social assistance or whatever the case may be, but responsibility is a big word. And this is not to stereotype anybody. This is not to kick people when they're down, but that responsibility has to be taken seriously. I mean, there are people, and we hear the stories, you know, we will often talk about the bad landlord, the slum landlord, but what's also very very real here, and it does include people receiving government support, is the bad tenant. So when you get the responsibility, and a a safe place to live has been afforded to you with our support and your need and want for a home, it's got to change the way that we just treat these types of issues. You can hear from landlords that have big commercial operations, and the bad tenant is a real thing, and we've got to make sure that that responsibility is taken seriously. Whether you're paying your own way or whether you're getting some additional supports, because that just really ruins the appetite for people in the private sector to get involved in that level and that price point of housing. That's a very real issue that I don't think we've fully grappled with.
2: And, and, and you are absolutely right, but there's always assessment. Most of those homeless people that are out there today, they have workers. They've been assessed in order to receive their $270 a month or whatever they get. Somebody is assessing them. And they can be assessed and know if they're fit to live. What I mean fit now, I don't mean character-wise. I mean like their health. If they can live alone in an apartment my God, years ago, they took many of them out of the, the mental hospital, as you well know, that had been there for years and set them up in apartments, and they did well. They did well. That happened 25 years ago they started doing that, and they live well for the most of them. So we're not giving those people a, a fair chance. Yes, there's fighting goes on. Yes, they beat it up and damaged things. That's when you, like you said... There should, they should be monitored. They should be given a chance. And if that chance don't work, well, then, okay, maybe they're only in a shelter.
1: Yeah. because
2: well, shelters. There's oral stories coming out of those shelters, Patty. They're frightening stories. If it was my child or your child, how would we feel? Just think. I can write a book on the stories that I have had in the last six weeks.
1: Yeah, I understand that we've got people who are sure we've got people far too young to be in some of these very adult bed sitting room uh, setups and operations and just for clarification, you know, words are important, I try to choose my words carefully. And this is not to stereotype everybody who is in one lot of life or another that they are bad tenants, but the outcome will be clear. If we're looking to the private sector to join uh, with governments for market and non-market housing, if the private developer, A, isn't going to be able to make money, B, is going to face uh, the, the churn of reinvesting, reinvesting, renovating, and repairing, then before long, that becomes a very unattractive business, which is going to further complicate and worsen the whole house- housing issue that the country is facing, and I guess most importantly, what we're facing here in our own province. Uh, Ruby, I'll give you the last word. Go ahead.
2: Well, thank you very much for listening to me, Patty. But I think the Minister of, of Housing needs to address this problem and do it, you know, sooner than later. And if there is a building, which I'm sure there are lots since the pandemic that has been closed down, maybe they should look into buying a couple of them and turning them into
3: apartments.
2: I know we're not going to be able to provide uh a house out in the field for all those people that's not what I'm asking for I'm asking that they look at and very seriously look at pu- putting those people in a safe environment and a place where they can be responsible to take care and be able to I have one gentleman said to me I lived off of ice and snow for one winter homeless I'd like to get a place where I can clean my own bathroom and make my own bed and wash my own dishes and cook my own meals. That's what that man said to me, and I could only sit and cry with him. These are the things they're asking for. They're wonderful, beautiful souls. They just need to be given a chance. And for some reason or another, they fell on bad luck. I don't question what happened. That's not my business. But to be able to go out and fight to make sure that they can put their head on a, in a safe place tonight is what I'm asking for. Understood. Not condemning government, not saying they're not doing en- anything, but it's not enough, and they need to step up quicker.
1: I appreciate the time, Ruby. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of that, I mean, Ruby's not wrong. And it all has to be, have the appropriate you know, harm reduction in, in place. And in addition to that, you know, I know it's, Ruby says it's not her business to understand how someone finds themselves in that type of predicament. But whether it be retraining opportunities, whether it be taking advantage of the employment st- uh, stabilization program, which looks like it's working, you know, it's going to be launched here province wide, but just here in this br- uh, part of the province. Some 170 people that were receiving social assistance participated in this program. They were given up to $250 to buy whatever they needed, like work boots or whatever type of gear or clothing they needed to re-enter or to enter the workforce. And then there was financial incentives if they stuck with it. Consequently, 40 of the 170 already are no longer on social assistance fully and gainfully employed, hopefully working their way up the chain. The longer you stay at it, the likelihood of being afforded a raise and all that goes with it, you know, padding your resume. So yeah, finding out who is, why someone is where they are is part of trying to solve some of these poverty and housing related matters, because there's help out there literacy and numeracy and employment opportunities, retraining opportunities, and, yes, harm reduction policies that are really geared directly to these better positive outcomes. Let's take a break. When we come back, Don's here to talk about the Capeland
0: fishery. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Don, you're on the air.
4: Yes. Good morning, Patty. Morning thank to you, you. For taking. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. The reason why I called, Patty, is because I've seen this piece uh, CBC had on the news there last week. I believe it was uh, where the scientists went out to uh, the, the ecological reserve. And at bird sanctuary outside of Whitless Bay. Okay. They found young birds in the puffins' nests, starved to death because the parents couldn't get enough food to feed them. Now, the capelin, of course, are the main food of the puffins. So I figured there'd be people on singing out on open line about this and in the news. But tour operators, that they should be concerned because if the capelin are gone, there's going to be no whales. So the tourist comes to see the whales. And uh, if capelin are gone, there's no fish
1: well, I mean, certainly it's a linchpin. It's a forage food for whether it be the cod stock or whales or so many different animals, including the birds, uh, puffins, you know, eat hake and puff uh, and uh, capelin alike. The rollover this year in the quota, I, I believe the capelin fishery got executed in July. So the quota was somewhere around 14,500 metric tons, exactly the same as it was in 2022, landed value. I think they got about 25 cents a pound for capelin. So, yes, it's, not, it's easy enough for me to talk about other people's money and other people's revenue. But we have to ask big questions about how we approach the capelin fishery because it will impact the entirety of the, the food chain, the ecosystem that is something that we still depend on richly. So the capelin is a big question.
4: That's right, Paddy. And uh, the capelin were so small this year that the Japanese wouldn't buy them. So there was one guy, caught a million pounds, had to sell them to a uh, Barry Group for twenty-two cents a pound. Okay, and he went. Uh, he destroyed generations of Caplan by catching this one million pounds. But uh, this same guy, he was one of the fellows that persuaded the fishermen to delay the, the crab fishery, and the, so. Uh, I was wondering about the the FFAW. They're more concerned now about those windmills on the West Coast. Shouldn't the FFAW be more concerned about what's in the ocean than what's above the ocean?
1: I suppose they could be concerned with a lot of things at the same time, but there are some... Environmental or ecological advocacy groups out there that have warned about the strength of the uh, the Capeland stock. I don't think. uh, Well, I can't recall the FFAW speaking to it directly. But fair enough, they're talking about you know interaction with the oil industry offshore. They're talking about uh, interaction with these wind proposals. Where they come down on Capeland, I can't recall them saying anything definitively one way or the other. To be honest.
4: Well, I've heard uh, there uh, shortly when the Capeland fishery was was on the go, uh, FFAW leader was going to contact Ottawa to increase the capelin quota. Okay. If he was concerned about the fishery, he should be contacting the federal government to shut down the commercial capelin fishery, because that's the... That's the ruination of the the fishery. And if the capelin goes, the ocean is dead.
1: Well, there's, you know, uh, fair enough. Capelin is obviously an important component here for the strength of a variety of stocks. That's that's indisputable. Uh, Don, anything else you want to say this morning? No, that's good, Paddy. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, I mean, for fish harvesters that rely on some additional revenue coming in through the capelin fishery, of course they will have a stance that is pro-harvest. You know, do we even have the required anecdotal uh, catch rates and formal science for just how strong the Kaplan stock is or is not? I don't know. I haven't thought about Kaplan in a while, but I'll have a look uh, later on. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Sylvia Murphy. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty.
1: Welcome to the how show. Are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How are you doing? Sylvia. Yes, you're on the air, ma'am.
5: Okay, this is Sylvia Murphy calling. Mm-hmm. I was going to speak yesterday, but a lot of things of the, the uh, tent city, that's what I'm calling it.
1: Have you been there, Patty? I drove by it a couple of times. I've been considering stopping by personally just to see what's going on, yeah?
5: Why not? Why don't you stop?
1: Well, I don't have any real big reason why I haven't yet, but uh, just from my I guess my own defense, I'm pretty busy these days too so I'm, i'll make time
5: yeah i've been there three times three days in a row and i'm i'm part of the newfoundland Makers, a small indigenous group we're not registered with the government but we're getting our name out there and one of my neighbors beverly two of us have been there three days in a row We've done everything that we can, like we picked up some uh, lawn chairs for them to be able to sit outside their tent or park themselves by John Cabot or whomever it is that's standing there. Um, I'll never talk about any of their stories because that's their stories. But the thing that I would like to see, and I've talked with the police, they're there every day, they're wonderful. They mingle with people. A lot of people there won't talk to them because there's that... um, I know I don't like really talking to policemen, but I'm not in a situation where I'm on a picket line or out in the tent city. But what I'd like to do, honestly, is to put a challenge out there for the three leaders of this province, Newfoundland Labrador, the three party leaders to go and spend 12 hours, that's all, 12 hours, where they go and they will walk up to the people and say, I'm homeless. And they have to try to find a tent, sleeping bag or blanket, uh, cushions. We're not bringing anything from home because we're homeless. I I want to challenge those three leaders to stay for just
1: 12 hours and not to be be saucy but what do we get out of that you know very quickly someone will say well that's just a photo op for politicians easy enough to spend 12 hours knowing you can go back to your own warm cozy home where you've got food in the fridge and stuff in the cupboard so is it just the optics of it or what do you think we actually get or achieve if the leaders took up your challenge
6: Um,
5: me
7: personally I think
5: if whichever one it is um let them come up with just a knapsack on their back because they can walk the streets. If they were homeless, through it on the street. They only have a knapsack or a bag with a few things that they have. So just for them to walk up and say, I'm homeless. Can you help me out here, guys? You got to get a tent, a blanket for them. And this is people that's bringing in these things, not necessarily sleeping bags. Some are up there without sleeping bags. I know that but most of them are comfortable because I've gone in and seen us but my thing is let the three leaders come up walk up to where they are and say I'm homeless now let them realize this is what we have to do now to find where am I sleeping tonight where's my tent where's my air mattress no air mattresses now you come out and you rough it for 12 hours have to go to the washroom where are you going there's no washroom so you better bring an empty
1: bottle with you, you know. Well, I'm pretty sure none of the three leaders nor any of the 40 members have ever found themselves homeless. At least I don't think that's the case for any of our elected officials. And, you know, even if they have some lived experience, even though it would be very short-lived experience of 12 hours or 24, whatever the number might be, um, I don't know how that changes the lot in life for the folks who are part of that protest, part of this... Campground or encampment, whatever the right reference is, for the some 30 people that are there now. It's growing and it's going to continue to grow. And I don't even know where the, you know, all the short term solutions have been offered. And for some of them, it's just not conducive to a healthy uh, life for them. Whether it be recovering drug addicts or the violence that they've seen in shelters, it just blows my mind that. They really do live and feel and say and think that it's they're safer in their tent than they are in the shelter. So well, I've been up there, and the grounds are beautiful. There's not one peck of garbage anywhere.
5: Everything it's just like a little city, honestly, clean. But they won't let them have a porta potty because of rules. Yeah. Okay. So I think if a leader came out there. And- Spent 12 hours or 24, whatever, that they would realize, listen, guys, this is inhumane. This is really inhumane. We're in the middle. Once someone said to me the other day, yeah, but this is Pippi Park land. I said, Really? I said, I'm indigenous. This is our land. And she got taken right back. But I don't I don't push that that issue. But the thing is, and I did realize I found two indigenous people there. And not a soul from the indigenous nonprofits have approached either one of those people, an Inuit and a Mi'kmaq, you know, and that's what hurts me. These people are human beings, just like I am. Sure. And I will do whatever I can. I cooked a ham on Sunday and brought it out to them. Um, Socks. These people need socks. I'm going to tell you one gentleman. His runners were so bad when he took off his shoes and his socks. His feet were white from being waterlogged, and it broke my heart. We went and got a big pair of um, heavy-duty blind rubber boots for him, and he cried, and a clean pair of socks, heavy socks for him. And he cried, Patty. And there's no one there looking after his seat. His feet have been ruined, big galls and blisters and everything on them.
1: It's a sad sad state of affairs, and I'm sure they appreciate your support of those others who are doing exactly what you're doing. I appreciate the time, Sylvia. Thank you for this.
5: But you don't think that challenge is good?
1: Oh, I didn't say that. I mean, I just don't know what we get out of it. That won't put a roof over anyone's head any quicker than at this point because the short-term solutions that are actually available today, I think they've been offered to every individual on the Hill, but they just are not what people actually need in the long term. It might be okay for a couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks, but that's not what they're asking for. They're asking for permanent solutions. and Well, I've
5: heard the newscast on VOCM, and they're saying, well... You know, they've gone and they filled out their applications and everything. But there's a two-year waiting period, isn't there, to get it
1: home? Well, it kind of depends on what you need. Uh, but, yeah, there is certainly a wait list. And that will still require some of these transitional opportunities like shelters. And I know that's not what people need. And I know that's not what people want. So, But there therein lies the rub. To come up with affordable, safe, dignified surroundings, or housing for all involved, and not just people on that hill, because they don't represent everybody who is actually homeless and in need today. So the road from there to a permanent solution is not overnight, and here comes the winter. So how this ends properly and appropriately It's still going to be a tricky piece of business to execute. And I feel for them. Of course, I do. I hear a lot of difficult, sad stories, emotional stories on this program and off air every single day. So I know where they're coming from. I know you do. Sylvia, I have to get to the break, but I appreciate your time. But I'm going to challenge three of them. Okay. Got it. You take care. You too, Sylvia. Thank you. I'm going to try my best. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, as usual, during the breaks, try to get to a few emails, and one was asking the question that I get asked all the time, as you know, why don't you speak to this issue or that issue? And I'm happy to speak to whatever issue is of importance to you, and you're more than welcome to call on it. This one was about how government handles RFPs. So we know the procurement process sometimes has been flawed. It's been updated and modernized in the recent past. and We've seen things like air purifiers for the classrooms where it ended up being a sole source contract. The only company that bid that was close to full compliance was awarded the contract and fairly substantial at that. So now there was an RFP went out from the government to see who might be interested in being involved, construction and operations for an urgent care clinic. Now in the New Hook Center out in Whitburn, of course the emergency room got replaced, so to speak, with an urgent care clinic. And it's only open three days a week and it's not ideal. So there's one plant for this area. Seven bids came in. But all seven were way above the budget that the government had in play. They were thinking that, and this was announced at the technical briefing that was uh, that happened in March, is that the facility would cost $900,000 to open, and they would rent an existing building for the 20,000-square-foot facility required. Then you'd go on to talk about the obvious one, is the staffing issue. But if this potential urgent care clinic, which doesn't replace emergency rooms, you know, you still might need emergency, or pardon, urgent, immediate attention, but it might not qualify as a quote-unquote emergency. So these clinics can absolutely help. When you add them to the family care clinics and all the way through the gamut, it's important. But it is interesting. And you know, I don't know who all the seven bidders were. I know who some of them were just based on the news story. But when technical briefings include the numbers, like we all found out back in March, you know, was there actually none of the seven bidders that were able to pull this off? And yes, make a profit. They're not doing it for the, out of the goodness of their heart. They're not doing it for a laugh. They're doing it to make money, and so be it. Profit's why they're in business. Totally understand. But back to the drawing board. The problem with back to the drawing board is that urgent care clinic is needed yesterday. Right now, none of these things developed overnight. It wasn't we woke up one morning and all of a sudden there was a housing issue and healthcare issue and a shortage of teachers. This has been developing for years. So, how quickly can this be turned around? The government says that they still plan to have this clinic open next year, but here we are heading towards the middle of October when you go through the RFP process. And I don't know what gets rejigged because if the budget is the budget, then How can you possibly think that a re RFP is going to see bidders come in less than they came in this time? Because, you know, there's always going to be some questions about how and who and who's bidding on these projects and who gets them. Also, someone sent me a link to a story that I did read. And I didn't think it was necessarily really applicable to the people of this province because we're pretty isolated, on the island is the island. Labrador, pretty far north of the southern border with the United States, but it was about cross-border shopping. The takeaway there was... People, let's say for instance, you live in Cornwall, Ontario, or in southern British Columbia, and you're a quick dart across the border to save some money on your groceries. Fair enough, lots of Canadians are doing it. Now, you have to have it for personal consumption when you bring it back into the country. If not, there will be a duty charge, but people are buying reasonable, personal, family-sized grocery lists when they go, and they're saving money. So when you add in the price of fuel, to know you can save money by simply going to the United States, interesting. The vast difference there is the wages. People do not get paid anywhere near what Canadians get paid to work in a grocery store, for instance. The minimum wage in the United States is $7.25 and hasn't changed in a long time. I can't remember the exact time, last time that there was any increase in the minimum wage in the United States. Is at least 2007 or nine. So between that, so we'll ask ourselves the question, do we want people to get paid less to bring down the price of groceries in the country? That just further complicates the problem for everyone working in retail. Secondly, the major upside for the American landscape is competition. We do have some competition in the country, of course we do. But even the Competition Bureau of Canada, when looking at groceries, said exactly that. You know, the profit margins are are what they are. There has been an increase in profit, not massive. You know, going after corporations makes it an easy target. But it's competition. The big five make up 80% of the opportunity to buy food in this country. And inside the smaller players, the entries, the juniors, or the mid-sized retail food operations, it's not just getting product in the store and being able to compete on price. It's actually all kinds of problems with competition in the distribution chain. So... How that gets settled, because the big five, they've either got big equity in, are able to really be so-called the biggest bullies on the block because their business is invaluable to the producer, the manufacturer, and the distributor. So how you increase competition with that landscape and with the population that we have in the country, which has cleared 40 million for the first time ever, You know, I don't think he can mimic the states and their business setup because 360 or 70 million people in that country, 40 million in this country. uh, The purchasing power of my dollar, which has really gone backwards very, very quickly in the last couple of years. So those are two stories. Look, I was happy enough to speak to the cross-border issue, but it doesn't really necessarily pertain to anyone living in this province full-time because the border is a long way away, and that would not be anywhere near... But I guess it does beg those questions about competition and how people get paid, you know. And again, if you wanted to dig in that whole minimum wage issue and there is a committee struck at the provincial level, all 40 members of the House of Assembly voted in favor of striking a committee to look at wages and, importantly, the tag of universal basic income or however people like to couch it because the minimum wage, the fight for 15, $15 an hour, has been ongoing for a very long time. And when the fight for 15 began, $15 per hour would have been very helpful today. Are people able to live if, it's, if you don't live at home? And if you have family, if you're working full-time for minimum wage only, you do the math. I don't know how people make ends meet. And there's the trick, right? Because minimum wage is different depending on where you live, how old you are, living at home or not, children or not. So the committee that's been struck about universal basic income, I don't really know how far they've advanced the conversation. Jim Din is a member of that committee. We asked Jim about it on this program, I guess it was late last week. They're meeting, but they don't have a body of work completed that we can see a debate and hear a debate and ask the questions. Because some people are all in. We got to do it. Some people are saying, no, it's just, you know, we'll run out of other people's money very very quickly but what we're currently doing no matter what party you support no matter what part of the political spectrum you find yourself on the current status quo just simply isn't working so it doesn't mean we have to do this or we have to do that but we probably have to do something different because what we're currently doing is not checking all the boxes. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, opportunity for you to join us on the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region at 709 273 Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and
0: then we're coming back. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin the, this hour on line
1: number one. So good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Playman Forsy. Good morning, Playman. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Welcome to, welcome to the show.
8: Thank you. Patty, my my call this morning is regarding the uh, continuing e- eroding of the healthcare system here in central in the central region. Of course, last week we did hear of another another doctor closing a practice, leaving you know a number of patients or so without a without a family doctor. You know, in the past year, we continued to lose doctors. Uh, you know, in the area, you know, with, with no replacements. You know, and we've had plans. And promises from two premiers now, especially here in central, the 24-hour emergency service down to Bobwood, They were going to open that, which would uh, leave some of the pressure off the Grand Falls-Windsor system. You know, regards to wait times and that, and streamline some of the uh, services services in the area. But, uh, Patty, the uh, plans, you know, the, the plans and promises and, amount, and announcements that they're making, you know, certainly not working.
1: Well, they, they don't necessarily seem to be. Just to pick up on the Botwood point before we go back to Grand Falls, Windsor, let's just, because some of these looking down the road and hypotheticals or best-or-worst-case scenarios have to be included in how we try to staff up one region or another. Let's just say that the Exploits Valley Group are successful with their wind project. Well, what does that mean if it brings p- uh, people back to or people moving to Botwood with the health care issue that you just spoke to? So those are types of things that, you know, when we talk about where we're going to place these family care clinics hopefully they come with new staffing as opposed to just moving staffing around I wonder how that's been included in the thought process about what regions what regions need investment talk about what works so we know that say for instance the cash incentive a signing bonus has worked in some places I think Bonavista has been the upside there but for a doctor in Grand Falls Windsor to work in that clinic it's $200,000 signing bonus so where do you think they're missing the point about how to attract and to retain a doctor in your area
8: well, you know, Patty, to get to get down, <clears throat> get down to brass tacks, is you know, last fall, uh, a family care team. You know, last fall, the the, the government uh, did announce a family care team for Grand Falls-Windsor. Uh, that was last fall. This is uh, another year into it, and that hasn't been implemented yet. Uh, you know again, to get the family physicians i don 't know if they had a plan at the time to put in the family care team. they promised that they they said it was going to be there it 's not here yet, and I know they 're working on it, but it 's still not implemented so where they 're going to get the physicians to now to fill that i don 't know and then to hear of another uh, of an announcement recently this week of of two hundred thousand dollars to attract uh, physicians for the area, which is a, which is good you know if we can attract uh, physicians here by all means we 'll take what we can get and i 'm sure we're, Around the province, uh, but is that two hundred thousand dollars now to attract uh, new physicians into the system, or is this to fill the family care uh, uh, team that was supposed to be here in the first place? You know, those are questions that need to be asked. And uh, you know, we uh, we you know, is that just moving physicians around, or is that attracting new new physicians? And especially again with the uh, with the wind energy coming coming to central Newfoundland, we certainly need to address all those problems, streamline the healthcare system that will 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 be one major priority here in Central New Flint.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is not to defend or to condemn one party or government or another, but I just don't know where this all ends with the provinces, the way they're behaving. Whether it be Nova Scotia coming here, the government of Saskatchewan sent a team down here to recruit. We're Just very quickly, it really feels to me, like when we talk about $200,000 signing bonus or $300,000 signing bonus to Labrador and provinces coming to poach from our schools or our active uh, uh, licensed and accredited healthcare pros, where does it end? Because just spending more money on staff is not going to improve the system. It's just not. So I don't know how the government is going to approach it, whether it be provincially, because it looks like we're playing tit for tat. We're going out to Saskatchewan to give them a dose of their own medicine. But I think there's a little bit of uh, federal guidance required here. You know, it's important with the first ministers, the premiers get together. I think, I think the next big important one is health care and housing. And ministers responsible for both have got to come up with national strategies because we're just pitting provinces and territories against each other. That is not going to end well.
8: No, you're right, Patty. And the funding does come from the uh, federal government, of course, streamlined. Some of it, yeah. Uh, so we need to, we need certainly probably more of that and whatnot, but uh, yeah, but it, we we still need to get back to the basis, Patty, of, of uh, training our own physicians. You know, right here in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, more seats and whatnot, and incentives and uh, and and those kind of options for physicians to stay here in central, uh, stay here in Newfoundland and uh, you know stay here in our province and work in our province and keep keep the doctors in our system. You know, why we can't resource and pay Patty and support doctors. That want to stay in this stay in our system uh, i i can 't understand it
1: i don 't really know what to say to these issues because they 're right there in front of us, and they are obviously a bit more complicated than many of us or probably many governments because again this didn 't start in two thousand and fifteen i mean this has been a growing issue what in addition to that. I'd really like to know a bit more about the statements that we hear. There's more doctors working and practicing here in the province than ever before. And yet so many people are without a family doctor, for instance, and we don't even know what that number is. The government tells me it's about 50,000. The NLMA tells me it's about 144,000. There's a big gap in between those two numbers. But what's, what are all the doctors doing? Do they have a full complement and patient roster? Are they doing pure research? Are they teaching? Because if there's more than ever, how do we find ourselves in this predicament?
8: I don't know, Patty, where the government is getting those numbers to, but I, have no I idea. know here in Central Newfoundland, like we've lost doctors, we lost one a year ago here in Bishop's Falls, we lost uh, one in Botwood, we've lost a couple in Grand Falls, Windsor, those had no replacements, so uh, where those doctors are actually placed or, or where they're to, we're not seeing them here in Central Newfoundland because Central Newfoundland is eroding by the, by the minute.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I'll add to that up, up in the lab west. Uh, this listener and follower of the program, a guy named Keith, Fitz, uh, Keith Fitzpatrick, who we've had on the show, he sent out a pretty informative uh, Twitter thread of, you know, he's calling them the uh, the captions. did you know? You know, right back to 2020 and the number of physicians that were rotating through and the reality on the ground today. So it is not great, to say the very least, in different parts of the province, including the people you represent. Uh, anything else this morning, Pleeman?
8: No, Patty. I just wanted to raise my concerns of, of those issues, and uh, we should, uh, you know, we, we certainly need government, whatever incentives, whatever plans to have, uh, you know, we certainly need to help here in Central Newfoundland, and uh, you know, whatever whatever we can uh, we can get,
1: uh, we'll certainly take. Just to shift gears very quickly before I let you go, uh, given the fact that you were the member that put forward the private members' resolution regarding crown lands that didn't get any traction when you brought it forward the first time, any thought of revisiting that again because i think that problem has now grown to the point where government knows that something has to change you know they may be able to dodge it last time are you going to revisit it
8: um you know it's, it's not going to go away patty i'll tell you that so uh, i'm open to see some legislation uh, in the house of assembly this fall
1: appreciate the time thanks fleeman thank you patty take care bye-bye that's fleeman Force. He's the pc member for exploits okay where would you like me to go now you want me to take bob okay let's go to line number five morning bob you're on the air
9: Good morning, Patty. This is old Bob Tucker,
1: Colonel.
9: How are you today?
1: Doing okay, Bob. How about you? Oh, still alive,
9: I was back in the hospital a couple of times, but that's nothing. I'm still on the green side of the sun. Uh, what, I, what, what, what I'm concerned about, Patty, is, is the cost of elderly people, uh, the cost of living, the food, the uh, rental. And uh, it's, it's gone right out of hand altogether. There's people on the street, as you know, right? I do. Yeah? Well, what, what, is there any, like, uh, I know just, uh, people have hard times. be down and out. I was down now myself. But, I mean, you know, there's got to be an answer. There's millionaires going around with money and don't know what to do with it. There's people in the States leaving a million dollars to the cats and dogs. And that's looking after the people. The older people now are the ones that made this country. And I think, you know, somebody got to help out here. A bit of common sense will go a long ways.
1: Yeah, hard to argue with that. You know, it's one thing to be on a fixed income very different than people who are maybe taking on some extra work and extra responsibility or a second part-time job. Because we all feel the exact same thing when we walk into the grocery store or we look at our bank account. We go to pay our mortgage or our rent. Right. It's unmanageable for a lot of folks. I don't, and again, I wish I could uh, could stop saying this, but I don't know where it ends. And I don't know what, what's going to change here. Because it has to change quicker than, sooner than later.
9: Yes, that's right, Patty. But see, a lot of the youngsters now are turning to drugs and stuff to try to escape the pressure of of what's going on here. I mean, I I was an alcoholic myself when I was younger, but I shook that, thank God. But this is why people are using drugs to escape from the realities of life, the pressures of life, and the pressures. Like, I mean... We've got to get something done here, or we're going to lose everything.
1: I appreciate the time, Bob. I'm glad you're still on the right side of the side and made time for the show this morning. Want to say anything else?
9: Yes, uh, Don da- Jameson, naming the, the, the road out to, to <clears throat> excuse me, Goobie's. Don Jameson, that's a good idea. Someone got a brain that's working because Don Jameson went to the school. I went to St George's School on Sorvan Road. Don Jameson came in and gave us a lecture one day. I never forgot word for word that that man said he was a wise man
1: fair enough he had he was a he carried a big stick
9: yes uh, uh, everything he said came true It's common sense like i mean people uh, the, the, nowadays, they can't see the forest for the trees. They're not looking at the real things in life.
1: Well, let's hope they can figure that out because we got to look in the appropriate direction to make the required changes. Bob, you take good care of yourself.
9: Yes, and Patty, you take care of yourself, and thank you very much to you and all your listeners for putting up with an old fool like me.
1: Uh, you're welcome, Bob. You're welcome on the program. Stay in touch. Thanks. Thank you now, over and out. Take care, bye-bye. Here we go, old Bob Tucker. All right. Uh, let's take a break. There's also an issue that I don't know what co- how it's being received uh, by p- people living on the North Coast, but now they have indeed had a guaranteed delivery date via Labrador Marine for provisions before the winter freeze-up on the North Coast. Maybe Layla Evans or someone living in that part of the province would like to talk about their thoughts and their takeaways here because when you talk about the price of food, there's a couple of people living in Labrador that send me uh, emails every now and then with a picture of the price of a pack of pork chops or whatever the case may be. Talk about what it costs to go to a grocery store here in the east end of town compared to in Labrador. Oh, my goodness. Let's take a break. When we come back, Rob's in the queue to talk about the Seal Cove Trestle. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Rob, you're on the
10: air. Oh, I hope you still don't have your turkey hangover. No. Feeling good. <laughs> okay, good, good. Happy Tuesday. Um <clears throat> I, or Wednesday, I mean. Mm-hmm. Huh, yeah. um, listen, um, I was going through my uh, my storage place there where I keep all my tools and everything, and I came across a, a Shoreline uh, newspaper from April 28th. And I just want to say, like, this is how the governments work, where they don't commit. They commit, but they don't go through with it. On the 28th of uh, April... Uh, there was a shoreline thing. It was fairly fairly lengthy. Uh, the Ottawa government, the provincial, and the town of Conception Bay agreed to combine resources to replace the old structure, the trestle, on, on Seal Cove Pond um, this summer. And absolutely nothing was done.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, there, this story is even older than that, too, because they were looking to Ottawa for uh, monies from the Disaster Mitigation and Adoption Fund. You know, I think there was, like, four, four kilometers left to be completed into Seal Cove Pond. So nothing happened this summer because the money was allotted, wasn't it?
10: It was. It was 3.2 kilometers, well, according to the—because uh, I got the, the shoreline right in front of me.
1: Oh, you'd have it in front of you. You'd know more than me. Yep. So,
10: and, uh, you know— um, mr carl morgan there who's been you know part of the part of the community for forever um he's been advocating this since 1988 and you know it was all given the go-ahead um they said it was going to be replaced this summer but not a hick was done with it and you know it's that's just you know the way the government works they'll promise something and then you don't get nothing
1: you know. Strange as to why that didn't happen, because it was only construction. All the engineering, all the planning was all completed.
10: It had to be for, for them to give the uh, sure, yeah. the money and everything. Yeah. So, like, it was all there and ready to go. They said it would be done this summer, but they didn't do a hitch with it. And, you know, it's just, it's just really frustrating when government will sit there and promise you something. And that's why, you, you know, a lot of people just don't trust government because they lie. <laughs> Period.
1: Well and I don't really know where the responsibility would lie. I suppose construction after monies have been approved would have to go to RFPs from the town of Conception Bay South. So I guess the right person to ask in this case would be Mayor Darren Bent, because I guess they would be the lead player once the money's in hand. I would say. I would think
10: I would say too. And and that's that's what I would think too, but you know but there was nothing said like there was oh, there's gonna be a delay because of they can't get enough construction equipment or whatever um but like you said like the money was already allocated so all the you know engineering stuff was already there everybody knew what needed to be done the old one had to be taken out and they knew there was going to be you know disruption throughout the summer fair enough but you know that just you know depletes the whole system here because you know the system is over 100 years old the trestle You know, there is no wharf or anything. Like, there's a private wharf down there that everybody uses, but it's, you know, getting in disrepair, too, because everybody uses it. And not a lot of people are coming here anymore. they, They can't access it properly.
1: And I guess the reporter covering this for the shoreline would have been Craig Westcott. So maybe yeah. Craig has asked these exact questions. I don't know. I'll drop a note to see if he has any, any information. Dave, let's see if uh, Mayor Bent, you know, lots of issues we can always broach with uh, municipal leaders like Darren Bent. see if he has any update on the Seal Cove trestle because if the money's there, but engineering's complete and no construction took place, we'll see what we can find out, Rob.
10: Okay, that's great. No, I just wanted to put that out there.
1: Fair enough. I'm glad you made it a topic here on the show.
10: Okay, thanks a lot, Patty.
1: Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to a lady who's volunteering at the tent encampment or the tent city on the uh, lawn across from Confederation Building. That's Leah on three. Leah, you're on the air.
11: Hi, Patty. How are you today?
1: I'm great today. Thanks. How about you?
11: Good. So I have been volunteering every day down at Tent City, um, and the tents keep coming, and the people, more and more people are joining that are homeless. And I have to tell you, these people that are there, not one of them has ever asked me for a penny. They are appreciative of every little thing they get. And the community has been amazing with donations, with blankets, with pillows, with everything they could need, food. But it's ridiculous to me that the government is not acknowledging, I think we're up to 28 people in the tents now, more coming every day.
1: Fair enough. I mean, I have heard a lot of good stories about individuals and community at large understanding and appreciative of the issues and trying to do what they can. And, of course, they can't do it all because they're not the government. They're just individuals. So they can supply, you know, boots and hats and mitts and coats and blankets and pillows. But that won't get those folks where they need to be. I know, like, Jim Din has been over there. I I know there's been some other representatives of Newfoundland Labrador, Housing and folks in the shelter business. But even if, let's, let's just say... Even if the premier walks across the street and meets with the people who are upwards of 30 of them in this encampment, yeah. That doesn't put a safe reform head either, does it? Because sometimes, and I think people are not wrong when they say, hey, it's fine to have a political uh, photo opportunity, but does right. that change the water on the beans? And in this case, it wouldn't. But I don't know, even know what the pragmatic plans are because all that's been offered. And it, there have been things offered, but they're all the transition offerings. It's shelters and uh, you know, applications, paperwork, the assistance in paperwork. That's not necessarily going to fix it either.
11: No, and the thing is, I am just a regular citizen. I did not know. I've been educated beyond educated in the past week. They're refusing the shelters because there are women there that have been sexually assaulted in the shelters. They get beat up. Their things get stolen. And there's open IV drug users, which obviously is triggering to somebody that's trying to get clean. Yep. So I can't understand How we have a province with such deplorable shelters that people would rather live outside on the sidewalk.
1: Yeah, I... I Going to guess, it's probably not that much different or better in various parts of the country, and that's not an excuse. That's just the, the brutal reality with how the governments have approached housing, how we've approached poverty. It's okay. just madness. So, Leah, you say you've learned a lot and have a deeper understanding just over the last, over the course of the last few days. Exactly yeah. what are we talking about? Is it about real-life experience in shelters, or what else have you learned with your presence here at that site?
11: Yeah, so, you know... A lot of times people assume that people downtown panhandling, oh, they've got a home to go to at the end of the day. Oh, they have more money than all of us. Don't give them money. Not the case. We have a 73-year-old man who slept outside behind a store the night before we got him. And these people are grateful just to have a tent. You know, they're grateful just to have food in their belly. Like I said, they don't ask for anything. I have been educated on, you know, a lot about drugs and alcohol and you know there's a lot of different personalities and everyone is coming together for the common good and it's like a family now but you know one may be drinking or whatever we don't see any of it because they are not doing anything in open out in the open um but i just my heart breaks for these people because so many of them just want a hand up you know they're They just want a better life. There's a 53 year old guy there that I've been helping every day. And I said, you know, do you have family? And he said, yeah, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I'm like, well, do you want to use my phone to call? And he's like, no, I'm not quite ready. But I went back on Thanksgiving. He's like, I've been thinking about it. Can you please call my mom? I'm like, absolutely. So I called and talked to his mom, you know, just to let them know they're alive because they've been on the streets living outside
6: on the streets.
1: Yeah, I suppose, uh, like Sylvia challenged not only the three political leaders, but for me to uh, stop by and see it up close and personal. And, of course, I've done plenty of that over the course of the last number of years. Uh, Leah, anything else you want to tell us before we say goodbye this morning?
11: Uh, No, I want to give a huge shout-out to Lisa, who is the person that started all of this. Without her and going on her TikTok Live, there would be no tents, there would be no blankets, there would be no clothing or food. Because she's the one that, you know, got this going, and the more she puts it on her lives, the more people are coming to drop off blankets, to drop off food. But she has done an amazing job of creating a family for these people, but now they've been outside for nine days, you know, like tensions are getting high, it's cold at night, it's rainy, and there's no proper solution. Offered to them. Uh, Income support does come every day. Housing comes almost every day. Uh, The police are there a couple times a day and they have been amazing. They just support everybody. We're just here. Make sure it's okay. You guys are doing an amazing job of keeping the property clean and keeping it, you know, in good standings and everything. And then they leave. So, I mean, there is great community support, but there's no real government mention of it and then we have refugees living in hotels and now they're complaining about their living conditions and we have our own sleeping outside
1: i appreciate the time and i'm sure they appreciate your support on site thank you leah
11: thank you patty take
1: care (laughs) bye-bye uh before we get to the break let's see about a flip our dinner coming up at uh, the royal canadian legion branch number one Join us on six is jennifer hi jennifer you're on the air
12: hi
7: patty
1: hi there
7: I'm uh, with the Royal Canadian Region on Black Marsh Road, Branch 1. Mm -hmm. We're having our yearly flipper dinner October 23rd. The tickets are $25. Uh, Takeout starts about 4 to 5.30 and eat-in starts at 6. It's a great way to support our branch. Um, You can pick up the tickets at the bar or you can call 579-8300.
1: You got a lot of flipper on hand?
7: We do, we do, yeah.
1: How many dinners can you make with what you have?
7: We're doing I think it's upwards of two hundred. Yeah. Eating and takeout, right? So where's where's Bill Tizzard? Slipper. We have roast actually also too, so if, you know, somebody like Slipper and somebody else might want roast beef, they can have it.
1: Absolutely. Where's Bill Tizard? Uh, Bill, I'm
7: he's unable to do it this year, so I stepped up. I worked in the office with Anne-Marie,
1: so okay. <laughs> she was
7: like, can you help, know, please? I was like, yeah.
1: <laughs> Good for her. Good on you. So give yeah. us the number one more time if anyone wants to pick up or information about getting a ticket to eat in.
7: Yeah, You can come to the bar at the Royal Canadian Legion on 59 Black Marsh Road, yep. or you can call 579-8300.
1: And when is it again, sorry?
7: It's October 23rd. And the tickets are $25. And you can take out. is between 4 and 5.30. And Eat In starts at 6.
1: Terrific. Uh, Dave wants me to put you on hold for a second, Jennifer. But once again, coming up on October 23rd, either a flipper or roast beef dinner, $25. The pickup between, say, 4 and 5.30. Eat In starts after that. Go to the bar at the uh, Legion on Blackmarsh Road or 579-8300. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. I'm going to put you on hold. You're going to speak with David here in a second. Perfect. Okay. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Bye. Okay, so Jennifer is on hold. When we come back, we're going to talk about housing out in Cornerbrook. A lot of focus has been on St. John's, obviously, but there's issues in different parts of the province, certainly in more heavily populated uh, areas. Then there's a lady also from Cornerbrook wants to respond to Leah. And then the road conditions from an anonymous caller on line number two. Don't
0: go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation
13: if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day
0: have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm welcome back to the show let's call line
1: number four to so give more to the independent member of the house of assembly elected in serving the folks of humber bay of islands that's eddie joyce good morning eddie you're on the air
3: Good morning, Patty, and thank you again for the opportunity to speak on a serious issue on the West Coast in the Quarterbrook area it's the housing um, it's a uh, the, uh, the, it's a real concern out here it's lacking um, like I, I know because I deal with the people on a daily basis our office deals from them on a daily basis uh, there are people living in hotels uh, they just have nowhere to live this summer I've seen people living in tents in the woods uh, the tent city in St. John's has brought it uh, to the forefront uh, in St. John's area but it's real in Cornerbrook I know a lot of people that uh, are couch surfing a lot of people don't know where they're going to stay at, and, and this winter, uh, as we all know, the cost of living has has increased so much, and and the um, people just can't afford. Sometimes, when through into an apartment, they get evicted, or they get evicted, and people want them out so they can increase the rent, and, and that's happening. That's real here in Corner Brook. Uh, I know the governor's paying hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands. You can't get the real number, um, but I know the last one here, there was, um, there was almost $300,000 in the hotel bills here in Cornerbrook. And, and Petty, sometimes you say, well, what's the solution? I know Minister Blake was, was on a, a media station talking about there was uh, a area out there with 32 units. Publicly, he said, Well, we're waiting for the feds. We could put the shovels in the ground today. We have our share of the money. That he, that's 16 units. It's a 32-unit complex. 16 units that the government can build today. They have the money, but they're trying to blame it on the feds. That oh, we don't do 32. We're not going to do 16. It's irresponsible for the minister to continuously blame it on the federal government when there's 32 units.
1: 16 is be paid for the province, and they could do it tomorrow. So, they're not doing. It. I just want to understand what we're talking about. What is this 30? Unit there's facility
3: th- there's an area in cornbrook with 32 units I've, I've been trying for two years to get a mobile
1: so these are 32 uh, Newfoundland Labrador housing units. Okay. That's
3: one. Now they said they're beyond disrepair because they've been shut down for the last six, seven years. They said, oh, there was no need for them. So they, they turned off electricity and all that over the last four or five years. Now they're saying that we need to tear it down and build, they're put back 32 units, one and two bedrooms, which is more appropriate. Minister Puig got on uh, on the media station and said that we got our money, we're waiting for the feds. Federal government didn't do it, so we can't do it. But he has the money to do 16. Petty over and above that 16, which they have the money to do, there's 30 units as we speak right now waiting to be repaired in the cornerbrook area that's not being done. And the minister himself, their own, their own department, put out the numbers which I've been saying because I go visit the areas and for the minister here minister Paul pointed to say well we're trying when he has the he has the ability to open up as we speak 42 units 40 to 46 units in Cornerbrook, and and he has control to do that. And I've seen the minister in St. John's with the federal minister of housing make an announcement, just one in Gander, just recently, but they stopped short, didn't come to Cornerbrook, to have a look at the the housing crisis uh, in Cornerbrook. And you hear today, and, and I know the Tent City brought this alive, and I've been trying to get these units open for the last two years. I documentation where I wrote the uh, previous minister also. Here, here's the situation, Patty, where people are living in hotels, people got no place to live, and there's units sitting there.
1: I'd like to know why. Because I mean, there's a long waiting list to get into a unit. and further complicated if you need, like, ground floor or if you have mobility issues or you need more than two bedrooms. So you know, not every request is the same. But when these units have been shuttered for extended periods of time, is there any rationale ever been offered as to why? Is it about the, the lack of... Contractors, Or is it money? Or is it something? Because I can't really understand if we have a long wait list, a growing homelessness problem, but units that are shuttered. The,
3: the, the, the 32, um, um, the uh, federal provincial, that 32 um, area where they're going to, um, the, the department said it was a lack of, of need at the time they shut them down. I don't know where that came from, but that's what the department put out themselves. There was a lack of need, so we shut them down. I, I, I've been in politics in over 30 years, the first time I've ever heard of it, but that's what the minister said himself, his department. The other 30 are, are sitting there, just sitting there, waiting for contractors or waiting for the, 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 the union themselves to go and do the work, to give them the money they can go do the work. I go visit the areas, and, and Petty, the, the, th- the thing that, that bothers me more than anything, we see every day, and it's probably right, wrong, I'm not judging one bit. We see all the bonuses that are coming out for, for different people, different sectors of employment, doctors, healthcare, um, uh, educators, other things. That's fine. I'm not disputing that one bit. But that money comes from Treasury Board. You have to go to Treasury Board to get that approved. So why don't Paul Puig, the minister, go to Treasury Board in St. John's with his colleagues and say, "I need the funding to get these 46 units up and running for the West Coast." You will see it every day. Every single day we see more money coming out for bonuses. And I'm not arguing about the bonuses, but the process that he can go back to Treasury Board and get this funding because if he, and he said publicly, he thinks the government's doing a good job, let's come out with me. come Let's go to the hotels and talk to the people. See how good you're doing. But, Petty, I've been offering solutions for two years, and, and I know I've been talking to Jim Din and he's been raising the issue also. God bless the volunteers volunteers in there with the tent city, but I'm giving viable solutions to help out 46 families in western Newfoundland, and the government has an option, and they have the ability, but do they have the courage to get it done?
1: That's- it's a fair question. Last one before I let you go, Eddie. Any update on the cataract backlog? The,
3: the, last, uh, the last I heard is they got the um, uh, backlog taken care of, and on a go-forward basis, unless it changes, Petty, unless it changes, on a go-forward basis right now, uh, the, the backlog will, April 1st again, they will get the increase to, to take, take care of the backlog. So if anything changes... I'll call you as soon as I find out. But right now, from my understanding, from the minister, is that on a go-forward basis that, uh, that they will be taken care of. And if it is, perfect. If it's not, I'll be on your show and ask the minister to explain why. But right now, from my understanding, is the current backlog. But on a go-forward basis where every year there's going to be extra people, they did they, they commit to it. And I'm hoping that the minister is going to live up to his word. And then the people in western Newfoundland that you've helped me a lot uh, through the open line and other uh, avenues that the uh, people now can get their dignity back. They can get their quality of life back. They can get their driver's license back at the can get out and, and visit their families and have a, have a quality of life in their later years. And I'm so proud that, that they have got that ability.
1: I appreciate the time, Eddie. Thank you. Patty, thank you again for letting me raise these concerns. It's very important. Pleasure. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Eddie Joyce, Bye-bye. independent member for Humber Bay of Islands. Uh, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We'll get to you right after the break. So we're going to talk about an issue for the folks on Bell Island and road conditions. Where? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty. I've called in about this issue in the past, and I'm reeling again here this morning. I couldn't believe the announcement this morning on the news that the city is considering putting in a roundabout on, uh, around the Airport Heights Drive area. Right. The condition of the roads here in the city are absolutely disgusting. I'm in the transportation business, I'm on the road hours and hours every day from east end to west end to Saint John's. I also deal with a lot of tourists. And the general consensus of, of these tourists are the conditions of the roads. And I had one gentleman say say to me, This this city is so pretty, it's too bad that the roads are so bumpy. Well that's what he exactly what he said. Um the the roads like in front of the Memorial Stadium, uh down around the Sheridan Hotel, uh the boulevard, you know, Newfoundland Drive. And, oh my God, Patty. But another thing the city has to address, uh, is the debris and the the garbage left around by construction companies. If you look around, like they're in front of the university everywhere, there's these wooden uh, Orange barricades, and there's pylons, and there's construction signs just strewn all over the grass. You know, the construction is long done. But they don't bother to come back and pick up the debris that's just lying on the side of the road, which to me is littering. Not to mention it's dangerous. I I was driving along, and and there was debris out in the street from these construction companies. And, I mean, Teddy, the whole city is torn up. Everywhere you turn, there's construction, construction. But what they do is they come to one area, they dig it all up, and then they abandon it. And then a week later, they'll come back, and, and, you know, it's just every street, every corner, it's just the city is just a, a total total mess well, i don't know why construction companies can't just come and 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 tear it up rep, you know repair it and and then move to the next project but they don't they come and they tear up everything they can and leave it and now they have all these ruts um, you know how they drill out square holes in the road yeah the grinding patch yeah oh my god everywhere you go you know, I have to swerve and 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 just to get around the, these these things, either that or beat up my car, one or the other. And you know, don't get me started on Pitch Memorial. Like, <laughs> you know, that's been on the go since April.
1: Yeah, it's going to be the same thing. Going to be next by uh, next summer as well. So,
14: but but that, <coughs> I'm curious. Just give me a second. <laughs> the thing is, is that okay? Fine. They're going to have to place, the the road tore up for the next number of months. Okay, that's fine. But What they're leaving the drivers to drive on is disgusting. Like, they could put just, you know, a layer of of shale or a layer of something, but they don't. They have the road torn up. Pitch Memorial is the main vein to get downtown, and you're you're beating up your car. I mean, if it's going to be that long to to be repaired, why can't they they make what's there drivable? But they don't. You know, I'm just so furious. It's just...
1: Sure. You know, the grind and patch, I think, you know, I don't really understand all the logistics of the grind and patch operations. I'm sure what they do is they put their crew on grind, and then they put their crew on patch. And I'm sure there's, uh, you know, crews that are... You know, unique or uh, associated with either grind or patch, or maybe there's a big overlap. I don't know. I know guys in the civil road work business, but it does become frustrating. There was a stretch there on Torbay Road where they did the paving, let's say between McDonald Drive and Pearson Street, right there by Antlers Irving. It looked like it was completed for quite a long time before they took all the pylons and stuff out of there. Like, I I didn't see them do any additional work, but yet all of the equipment was left in place, or I guess all the barriers and the pylons and all the rest of it. So... Yeah, and, you know, driving down Newfoundland Drive is really a bit of a thrill ride, and I'm sure you can see from space. It must look like a patchwork quilt because it's nothing but patchwork. Now, would the motoring public be up in arms if the other opportunity was taken? And that, what I mean by that is haul all the blacktop off of Newfoundland Drive and pave it in full, which, of course, would be a main through fair gone for X amount of time during the paving season, I guess we'll call that the summer but I totally get your concerns. Back to the Airport Heights issue. What was your problem with that announcement, I'm sorry?
14: They're considering putting a roundabout up up, um, uh, on the intersection like Majors Pass, um, Portugal Cove Road
1: I thought that sounded like Um, a really good idea
14: I know, but they really should concentrate on what they have now and and fix that before they move on to to this uh, project you know, they keep spending money and spending money building roundabouts and all this kind of stuff while the roads that everybody uses every day um, are deplorable. They're beating up our vehicles, they're dangerous. I have a friend who's an avid cyclist, and she said she, she can't, she has to actually put the bike in the back of her car and drive somewhere where the roads are fit to, to drive her bicycle. Because you can't drive them on the roads here in town, like the ruts and, you know, uh, on Prince Philip Drive. For the last two years, at least, I've been noticing it. They draw these green circles around the, the, the culverts and, and the holes in the road, but they never fix them. <laughs> you know, they go and mark them and yeah. say, "Okay, well, we're going to fix them soon," but they never get fixed. You know, so I think the city should concentrate on a, getting access to construction companies to clean up their mess, and b fix the roads before they move on and spend millions, if not
1: billions, on another project. You uh, use the word there, I think it's important in this context is dangerous. I mean, that intersection of the Cove Road and Majors Path is extremely dangerous. If I'm not mistaken, it's the fifth most dangerous intersection in the city. I know there's been dozens of collisions over the course of the last five, six years there, and some of them was covered with pretty high rates of speed when people especially are travelling on the Cove Road itself, and a strike a car that's been travelling on Majors Path. So I think that's the motive for doing that is to deal with what is a pretty dangerous intersection. Because uh, I know when I go up there, if you want to make the left at the lights, boy oh boy, with other cars coming towards you who want to make the left on Majors Path, you can't see anything, nothing, because of the curvature of the road. So I think that's the motivation behind that particular uh, roundabout.
14: I'm not against putting around. No, in. I, 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 I understand. Think that the city is, for God's sake, you know, do something with the roads that you have now because it's not only us, you know, it, it's, it's tourists coming in, you know, it, it's, it's, it's deplorable and the, the, the litter that's left around is disgusting and, like I said, I don't think enough emphasis is put on cleaning up after construction uh, jobs and again and and what's happening is these signs are left up long after the construction is finished and motorists are just ignoring it I ignore them because you see a construction sign and and nine chances out of ten there's no construction taking place (laughs) you know so I'm I'm, I'm, you know guilty of that myself you know and one last thing and then I'm going to let you go I'm I'm such a rant here this morning Uh, people running red lights it's unbelievable I see it you know, I'm on the road two or three hours a day all over the city, and it's unbelievable how they race that red light, and especially when they're turning. They they just, you know, the light is a solid red, and, you know, I, I go, I attempt to get through the intersection, and, uh, and you have to wait to see if anybody's going to run the red light. And, I mean, to those of you out there that are doing that, if you have no concern for your safety or the state of your vehicle, think of what you may hit if you if you run a red light, just think of what could be in
1: the other car. It's a pastime of mine when I drive around. When I leave here, the first light I arrive at is right here at uh, Ken and Kelsey. And by the time I get home, if I pass I don't uh, maybe five or six uh, traffic lights, uh, uh, intersections, guarantee half of them someone ran a red light. I mean, it's every single day here on Ken and Kelsey. I mean, it is nonstop. Just about every single day when I stop to make a left-hand turn to go up Kelsey to get on Team Guju, someone runs the red light right there you know, going south on Kemal Road. It's its inevitable, and it'll happen again today.
14: All right, well, anybody listening from the city of St. John's get after these construction companies. You're spending the fortune, you know, getting committees to clean up litter. To me, that's just as bad, what they're leaving behind. Just debris all over the place. Up on grass, people's lawns everywhere, it's disgusting.
1: I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you.
14: Thanks for the rent.
1: You're welcome. Take care. <laughs> okay. All right, bye-bye. Care, bye. Yeah, the front of you know, people don't like the thought of speed cameras, you know, Big Brother and all the rest of it. Cost recovery would be pretty quick in this city to install red light cameras and speed cameras in some of the most notorious spots right there on, say, the Outer Ring Road, certain sections of it. But at the red lights, she's absolutely not wrong. Well, that's at least what I see anyway. Uh, let's go to line number three. Call Ambrose, you're on the air.
12: Hello, buddy. How are you getting on? I'm
1: grand today. How about you?
12: I'm not too good, Paddy. There were five days without any money in the bank machine.
1: On Belle and, Isle. And, and, that's, and that's not right. Why would that be? I mean, the weather has been okay. The ferry's been running. I don't know. Is it a
12: scotia problem or the security much? You know, I like to see the people on and get together and, and do something about this. I never hear from a councillor. I don't hear from the mayor or nothing. You know, I got to go to town to get through out but if I went to the store, they'd charge me $5 to take uh, uh,
1: $50. Yeah, I don't know why it would be the hold-up in restocking a, an ATM. And you're right. I mean, that might be on the bank's end or the security company, uh, the Brinks truck or the other outfit that's around. I don't know why that would be, but five days is a bit too long to go without. Uh, do you know the company that does the restocking? And no, uh, this boy, is Scotia Bank, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the top securities in town, I think. Okay, so I I can see it in my mind's eye, but I can't come up with the name. Uh, the, 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 the ridiculous boy. I mean, we weekend, no no get getting money at the bank. You go
12: to a, to a store and they uh, get a cash back. They, if you got fifty dollars, they take five dollars off of your fifty. Uh, they, they give you fifty.
1: Yeah, I get it. Uh, so, th- is this a Scotia Bank ATM?
12: The one machine here with with the Far one not enough it should be two machines up there
1: yeah I don't know a lot of places would be happy enough to have one because the banking has become a bit sparse uh Scotia Bank should be able to give us a very quick answer as to why delays in restocking the ATM on Bell Island I'll zip them off I'll see if I can answer for you
12: okay takes a million Pa Bye.
1: no problem Ambrose
12: okay okay
1: okay. All right. Thanks, Ambrose. Okay, there we go. Ambrose is gone. So while I was saying about Ambrose, Dave says that he's been told already during that call as to what exactly is going on. There's a technical problem with the machine itself. And so it's not the lack of willingness to restock or available ferry runs or what have you. Apparently, it's the machine. And, of course, maybe it shouldn't take uh, too long to fix one of those machines, which are everywhere. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, there's a caller in the queue who wants to talk about the Bureau and Peninsula Highway. And then Allison's there to talk about an online wind energy forum. Don't go away.
0: Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on one. Caller, you're on the air. Penny. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you?
15: Hey, you're looking good, too. Feeling good. Uh, Paddy, uh, it's finally happened uh, for the Bureau Peninsula, uh, Bureau Peninsula Highway here. It's, it's, somebody's after looking into it, I think it was Don Jameson's grandson, to get the highway named after Don Jameson. Mm hmm. Carl One of the best palatines was ever born. him, Joyce Marwood. And i some proud to hear that the road from so I suppose from Gooey's to Marystown, but it's anyhow, child after Don Jameson.
1: Yeah, so when did that happen?
15: Uh, I don't... Uh, when what, what happened? When it was called after him?
1: Yeah, when was the decision I made to...
15: In maybe the last couple, two or three weeks, I'm Okay, I so... Into it and got a sign made up, so it took him time to do that.
1: Yeah, good. So that would have been Roger. Roger Jameson would have been the man driving that Roger, bus.
15: okay. He said well, it was his grandson, but... And uh, I was talking to Dwight Ball about Daddy Marystown one time, and he said, uh, it's a good point. I said, well... See, if you look into it, he said, I will. Never heard of it from that day to last week. And when I heard it, I was tickled. I write right proud of it. Uh, Don James is a fine man.
1: I don't think I ever had the opportunity to meet him, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I know the stories of his political career, obviously. Yep. But uh, so, yeah, that sounds like a fair idea, a solid idea to rename that stretch of highway after him.
15: Yes, oh, sir. Perfect. Right on. I said it for years. He should be named after Don Jamsin. Ever since had... he started there. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah.
1: Good news. Anything else you and want I to say?
15: Hope, I, hope, I hope it's called after from Goody's Junction, at least in Marystown. Sure. I don't know about the Grand Bank over now, I don't know who was responsible to put that there. I don't know. If, if, it, if it was him, it's too named to after him, too.
1: Fair enough by me.
15: Yep, oh yep, oh more calls in the boat.
1: I appreciate you calling the show this morning. I didn't even know that that hap- had happened. To be honest,
15: yes, my friend, for you last week, and I phoned. I was talking to Linda, Linda Swain, is it? Yep, yep. And she said, you "You're happy, brother." She said, "Yes, my darling, one of the happiest men that's on this peninsula."
1: It doesn't take much to make you happy.
15: No, sir, it take. Okay. <laughs> I guarantee you, that made me happy.
1: Good news. Look, I appreciate the call this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay, my friend. Take care. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. you good. Oh, that was a bit quick. He's wishing me a good day. I wish you the very same. Okay, let's keep rolling here. and We'll go to line number four. Good morning, Allison. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? Good morning to you as well. I'm doing okay. How about you?
6: Great. So I'm calling about an online public forum that I think will be of interest. To your listeners, and it's really of importance to uh, we fill all uh, residents of the province. It's uh, it's this evening at seven o'clock. It's being live streamed on uh, Facebook, um, and it's regarding the you know government's uh, wind energy sort of mega project industry.
1: Who's hosting it? <laughs>
6: Uh, So it's being hosted by uh, EnviroWatch NL, which is a volunteer-led, citizen-based, nonprofit, province-wide organization that was launched about a year ago. I'm part of the executive of it. And uh, we've been working with a number of groups and organizations and decided it's time that we have a little more, people have more information because it's really not, it's not getting out there about uh, you know just what these mega projects, these wind energy mega projects, are all about. Uh, and of course, today is the deadline for submissions on WE uh, wind energy GH 2s um, environmental impact assessment. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. So today uh, it'll be at seven o'clock. Uh, people can watch it um, live either on. NL's Facebook, or it'll also be live streamed on NCMAC Matters uh, Facebook as well. And there'll be three fantastic panelists. Um, a, you know, it's going to be an exciting, informative discussion. It's going to be about the mega project, about green energy, about the public consultation process, or rather the lack thereof. And uh, the three panelists include uh let me see tammy park Tai. she's with the west winds first nation on the west coast of the island and she'll be talking about you know how this mega projects going to mean
1: um so um, pardon me who are the panelists and what are their backgrounds in this industry
6: Yeah. so there's tammy park Tai. she's with the west winds first nation on the west coast of the island She'll be talking about how a wind energy project is going to mean irreversible impact on land and water, on the people of the Port of Port and the Corduroy Valley. There's Nick Mercer of the University of um, Prince Edward Island. Yeah, I know Nick. Um, yeah. Yep. So he will be discussing alternative strategies for development um, that'll create space for residents to have a say about their future. And we also have our third one, is Russell Williams. Russell is with the MUN's Department of Political Science. So he'll be looking at it in terms of um, provincial sort of, uh, you know, an economic uh, political structure that sort of, you know, really privileges these mega projects. So three panelists, uh, listeners, people that are watching will have a chance to put questions to the panelists. It's going to be informative. They're going to find out a little bit more about what these mega projects Really mean, and I think one of the main things is, I mean, Envirowatch NL um, certainly is behind and believes in the need to switch from a fossil fuel-based uh, economy to a green one. However, mega projects are not the way to go. Um, there's more and more evidence-based research that's happening now around the world that just shows these any kind of uh, mega project. Uh, Green and using wind energy for hydrogen is simply just replacing one uh, non-viable with another, you know, non-viable uh, industry. It would take massive amounts of mining for minerals and rare earth elements to sustain uh, a, a huge uh, hydrogen industry. What's needed is really a small projects that go to direct electrification of communities and community.
1: Yeah, I understand that, and that that's a point Nick Mercer has made here on this program. The issue yeah. there is that this isn't a domestic uh, product, period, at this moment in time. Like Their thoughts are to sell it elsewhere. So there's a difference between community-based, small-scale electrification versus what this business model looks like. I get the point that's being made, but I just want to pick up on something you said. You said that people will be able to find out what, what's Behind these projects. What does that mean?
6: I don't know if I said exactly that. But okay, said, that's yeah. how
1: I heard it. If I'm wrong, I apologize.
6: <laughs> well, we will be discussing, I think, yeah, exactly, uh, why there has been such a lack of, of public consultation, what that means, what it might look like, uh, what the impact on the electricity grid is going to mean for Newfoundland and Labrador. Sure, it's you say it's not a, uh, the whole point is it's uh, as a not for a domestic um, uh, product. It's to be sold overseas. And I guess the question is there then, then why the hell are we doing this? I mean, ostensibly it was the whole impetus behind this was as a climate change mitigation. And as such, there will be an industry. But if it's not going to help climate, the climate crisis, which it will not and likely make it worse and will lose time, then why, why on earth are we engaging in this? That in the end, um, the the far the, greater profit will go to the billionaires like John Risley, um, and we will be left with a devastated environment, absolutely. We'll be giving away our fresh water. What does that mean for NAFTA? That's a whole other thing. But, you know, who knows, right? Mass ex- export and way um, uh, um, um. And what are we left with? A few permanent jobs. You know, this whole thing about jobs, jobs, jobs. There will be jobs in the construction phase. Absolutely. We've seen it's another mega project. And that's the other thing. Mega project. Haven't we learned our lesson by now with must
1: yeah, and, and I get that analogy as well, but of course there's a couple of distinct differences between Muskrat and World Energy GH two. And uh, people really focus in on that one, and I, f- I do have long found that interesting because, and I think that's j- just a direct relationship with John Risley. The Muskrat, it was the Crown Corp took it on, and I was their only customer basically. I mean, we had a partnership with the Mayor and Nova Scotia Power, but I was their primary customer, and my tax dollars built it solely versus what is my contribution through federal tax dollars as incentives for these wind to hydrogen projects. The question I I guess then becomes, the thirst for energy is growing. The sources are always going to be debated. There is no such thing as 100% green energy. There simply isn't. You know, we can talk about what's greener than fossil fuels and hydrogen would be greener and hydro is greener and solar and wind may indeed be from engineering through... I'll ask you
6: there. Why do you think green is... Why do you think hydrogen is greener?
1: than fossil fuels
6: if it means if it means that that you know you require so many well first of all it won't be hydrogen if it's going straight into ammonia so right now do you okay so we are turning wind energy the idea would be to turn wind energy into hydrogen energy loss there hydrogen to ammonia energy loss there Transporting it across the ocean to be used as, as a fertilizer in industrial farming, which is which is <laughs> not particularly green. But it, by the time you've got it in Germany or wherever, you're you're now at twenty percent of your original. You know, it's not exactly. Who uh,
1: who said that the end uh, end usage will be strictly for fertilizer or industrial farming?
6: It's, uh, I think just about everybody has already said that it'll be used as ammonia. We are shipping ammonia. So, and they have said that the ammonia will most likely be used um, for, uh, for fertilizer to substitute the ammonia that they had been getting from Russia.
1: I mean, this is quite well known. Yeah, no, my point is the hydrogen, they're shipping it via ammonia as the medium, as the vessel, not specifically so someone can turn it into fertilizer. That may indeed be the end use, I'm not denying that, but the choice of ammonia wasn't to help generate uh, better opportunities and cheaper opportunities or to avoid Russia with the fertilizer, but I I get your point. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
6: So so anyway, in terms of green energy, it will not be it will it simply will not be, and I think we can do better um let's have wind energy here absolutely, let's have turbines absolutely, but if we're thinking about the climate crisis, and that should be our first goal here is then let let's look at um. Producing green energy directly for here, or or for uh, the residents of the Maritimes, which still use coal, let's use this uh, wind energy to direct electrify and get them off coal. There's much much better uses. You know this this project is is just a smokescreen for uh, a huge sort of um, uh, uh, money maker. For wegh G A G H two, it's got nothing to do with the climate crisis. It's got nothing to do with building sustainable industry
1: here or a green industry. That's a total smoke. Because it's W-E-G-H-2. not a domestic it's not a domestic proposal though. I I get the so point. But I mean
6: nothing, and so so why should we have any, so why should we so why should we be giving away our land? Why? When the end product as I say, again, the impetus for this, both provincially and federally from the Liberals, is to combat climate change. It will not do that at all. In fact, it will probably do the opposite. So why are we destroying our land, giving, you know, t- taking down our forests, which are a carbon sink? We will be <laughs> we will be poorer here for it. And then, of course, now, because this um, project in stevenville will take the hydrogen plant supposedly will be up and running at least a year before the turbines will need to feed into and use a massive amount of electricity and so now hydro is saying ooh we don't have that for muskrat no 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 (laughs) so we have to build it diesel-powered fuel i mean the whole thing is ludicrous it's absolutely ludicrous and which you know questions the government their whole energy policy. I mean, this has not been thought through at all. They're being rushed into it. They're being rushed into it mainly by Risley, and they need to sit back and and take a deep breath <laughs> and say what's best for the province and what's best for climate change mitigation, and then look at and then look at the industry because this is not a job maker. You know, I have family that work as uh, wind turbine electricians actually in ontario so uh, and i'm not from there but um so i'm totally behind I okay. also know it takes few of them so there'll be few permanent jobs we've seen this time and time again boom bust and the other thing is this industry these turbines and they have said this too it's about a 20 year it's about a 20 year and then we'll be shut down if we won't end up with stranded assets before that because you can be guaranteed if, we, if, if this product, as you say, is not for domestic, but it's being shipped over to Germany, and it has only 20 percent efficiency energy efficiency by the time you get there, don't you think that if someone uh, you know, in Europe or somewhere else is going to have a far more competitive um, um, hydrogen?
1: Uh, look, fair enough. Uh, Alison, I'm just going to guess that you've never heard me uh, talk about this issue before because of the points you're making about, you know, dirty diesel to generate so-called cleaner power for an export market and whether or not closer proximity to Germany or other EU countries who would be interested in hydrogen. And there's been big hydrogen projects that have been shelved already in Europe. So these are all points that have been made quite clearly and repeatedly on this program, just for clarification's sake. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Give the folks the details very quickly where they can engage with the online Wind Energy Forum?
6: Yep, absolutely. So um, you can register for Zoom by uh, emailing envirowatchnl uh, at gmail.com, or you can watch it on uh, EnviroWatchNL's um, Facebook, and it's at 7 o'clock this evening, sorry, 7.30 this evening, um, Newfoundland time. So as I say, it will be... and. On Zoom, on Facebook, and um, yeah. Okay. October the 11th, three panelists, and there will be a lot more. Obviously, we don't have time to discuss everything here, and I don't have all the information the
1: panelists have.
6: It's supposed to be a really exciting and
1: informative uh, discussion.
6: And thank you for your time, Patty.
1: I appreciate yours, Allison. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye bye. All right, uh, let's take a break very quickly. Lots of people, and my email has been working all morning, so I got a massive backlog. But. Tons of people ask me if I have any contact or information about why they didn't get their GST rebate, which came out on October the 5th. Plenty of people did not receive it yet. The federal government always says give about 10 business days uh, after October 5th if you did not get it. The easiest way to find out what's going on is to access your CRA account. Maybe you do have one. That's the best place to do it. Getting on the phone has proven to be fruitless. But lots of people did not get their GST rebate on the 5th. The government says 10 business days. You should have it. We'll do some follow-up on your behalf. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Joanne. You're on the air.
13: Uh, Good morning, Patty. Um, I'd like to talk about the uh, journey that Jack Whalen is having, he and his family, as he's bringing his plight to Confederation Building and trying to bring awareness to ending the uh, statute of limitations on the um, child abuse here in Newfoundland. So... I'd like to talk about that from more from um uh an emotional side rather than a political one, so I think that um I have to start from the beginning so about um I am from Newfoundland, born and raised, but I live in Ontario. I live half the time Newfoundland half the time Ontario for the last number of years now. So about a year or so ago, I began this study into uh, the First Amendment audits in the United States regarding policing. Now, this will all make sense. We'll come back in a moment regarding policing and so on. I did that because I am a business owner, and I wanted to be able to provide the best I could for my clients. And I wanted to know about basic human rights, uh, Canada, United States, so on and so on. So I started watching those. And I started to become more and more aware of how little I was aware of my own human rights here in Canada. And of all the years that I've been on the planet, of all of my you know, working, living in different provinces, I, I had no idea that... I was so unaware of our basic human rights. So I started to look at it more here in terms of Canada, of course, and uh, at the same time, Jack Whalen, was uh, it appears he was starting to try to bring light to what was happening here in our province because um, I'm currently on the island right now and uh, so what was happening here on the island in terms of the statute of limitations regarding the, uh, a victim being able to take um, action cl- um, uh, civil um, lawsuits where he was able to, a victim was able to take a lawsuit against against their abuser. Well here in Newfoundland I learned and as we all are learning now, uh a victim only of a child abuse, not physical abuse. Now, I'm speaking specifically of physical abuse. So a victim of a physical abuse only has until uh, two years after the abuse or two years after it becomes known to them. Now, there's a lot of the politics in there and I'm sure others can speak on that. But I want
1: to let me it. interrupt for a second, Joanne. I didn't know how in-depth we were going to get with this, but this is this is actually massive issue there's a difference in statute of limitations for sexual versus physical abuse is it okay by you if I put you on hold we'll take the newscast and come back and finish our conversation
13: absolutely I would love that. thank you so much
1: let's do exactly that Joanne's on hold because that difference you know abuse is abuse and the ongoing trauma is exactly what it is there can be very similar traumatic uh, ongoing issues for people sexual versus physical not to say that they're equal but we'll finish that conversation with Joanne right after the news don't go away
0: Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. And relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin Joanne online line two. Joanne, you're back on the air.
13: Hi, thank you. So I will... Um... <clears throat> try to keep going, so I remind you that um, I'm coming from more of an emotional space than one of a political, but of course there's remnants on um, both uh, both facets there. So, uh, going back to Jack Wayland, and at the time, like about a year ago, when he began his journey, um, I thought, and then I was becoming more aware of human rights and how they were affecting us, and then I was seeing... and. Um, Reading more about Jack, um, his journey, because I know them personally, and I'll get to that in a few moments. But uh, it um, it got me to thinking that you know maybe we in Newfoundland don't really fully understand uh, what he's actually doing because. Uh, the difference between as you've pointed out uh before the break the difference between the statute of limitations on the uh, victim's ability to take action against the uh, the abuser for sexual assault uh sexual abuse uh, has no limitations but that only occurred since uh, the um, incidents that occurred here with uh, the um the on casual incidents and so on. The statute only changed then
1: for the sexual abuse. Joanne, let me set the stage. Maybe people don't know exactly what we're we're talking about or who Jack Whalen is. Jack Whalen spent a couple of years, or 730 days, I believe it was, basically in solitary confinement out at the Whitburn Boys' home. And so consequently, his statute of limitations and his lawyer, Lynn Moore, says it infringes on his charter rights because he had the violent dreams, no continuing education while he was locked in solitary. at such a young age was is simply extraordinary stuff so that's who Jack Whalen is he made a makeshift cell replicating what he was locked in put it in the back of his pickup truck took the federation building and has done more tours with it so that's basically what we're talking about
13: Yes, thank you so much for that. So I was looking at it from the perspective, of perspective of what it really means for us, for Newfoundland Newfoundlanders, because um, it's only Newfoundland and New Brunswick that has that statute of limitations, and that until that um, is changed, it will affect us all. I I know I don't live here all the time now, so it will affect you all because it. Uh, applies to anyone, even if it occurred today and years from now we um, want to talk about it, that statute unless it's changed, we're still going to be your children, my children, our grandchildren, It's all they're all going to be affected by this statute so now that's on the political realm so I leave that there and I want to come back to the, uh, the personal, to add a to personal touch to it, so recalling that I went back in a a year or so ago to seeing Jack I was immediately it immediately brought sort of brought me to action and said, I have to do something here. So I'm going to tell the story. A story is not easy to tell, but here goes. So I was born and raised on the Battery, and um, as, as are the Waylands, Jack Wayland and his family. And his sister Margie, in grade 6 at St. Joseph's, I went to school there. I met Margie. We both lived on the Battery. And um, Mrs. Whalen, Margie's Jack's mother. uh, She at the time was a widow. She's passed now, but only in recent years. She has a large family of her own. The Whalens were not a very small family, but they weren't huge. But Mrs. Whalen was a widow, and we can all recall, we uh, we all know that during those times and us living on the battery and so on, they weren't easy times. Now, during that time, my mother was a victim of horrific uh, domestic violence, and Being me in grade six, Margie Whalen is my classmate in grade six. I had nowhere to go. We had nowhere to go. My 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 brothers. I had three brothers. One cerebral palsy. Many will recognize me and my family my voice and the story. So. I'm almost 60 years old today now, so I'm, this is many years ago. So Margie, where I used to go to do the projects at the Wayland's house, and my school projects, and Margie said you could sleep here, and Mrs. Wayland, no questions asked, no money, just no, no, nothing. You know, she said, come here whenever you want, and I'll let you sleep here. For two years, from the time I was 11 years old to the time I was almost 13 years old, Mrs. Wayland and the Waylands, they kept me safe. They they kept me from having to go into a Mercy Convent orphanage, you know, back and forth. They helped my mother, who was, she needed so much help. She needed so much help. It was only her and my grandmother and the four of us kids. That's all it was. So that's my passion to there. But now, on a bigger scope, I got me to thinking. My heart bled for that because I thought here is one man trying to tell his story on behalf of all men. And what people don't realize, what people outside of this province perhaps don't realize, is Newfoundland men are strong, proud men. They come from a history uh, of strong, proud men who don't want to talk about things of nature like that,
1: where they're okay. Where they're feeling. Sorry, so where are we going though, Joanne? Just to make sure we're on track. So we're going with i trying to bring out the story
13: of where how what jack is doing is not only bringing light to changing the physical the statutes of limitations but also giving i believe giving a voice to all newfoundlanders to be able to say that it's okay to talk about physical abuse it's okay to reach out and ask for help it's okay to be able to redress your grief to the government if you feel that it's uh, you're not being hurt I believe that on a personal level his story is very difficult to tell mm-hmm. and that it's difficult for all people to tell these stories and that here on our island here where Newfoundland and New Brunswick are the only two provinces that has this statute of limitations, if people understood that if we came together and we uh, were aware of how this is affecting us not only on the political aspect of it but on the emotional, then you'll get to see that there's a real face, Real this, this represents a face of Uh, pain and uh, a history of uh, not being able to talk about abusive
1: issues. Fair enough, and the the statute of limitation on sexual abuse only changed as a result of the Hughes Inquiry regarding Mount Uh, Cashel, uh, and the thought, and this came from Helen Conway Attenheimer, who's the justice critic, she wonders aloud whether or not we're not going to see a change to the statute of limitations on physical abuse with the unknown cost, because there will be a cost to government, and wonder whether or not that's their motivation politically for not changing that statute of limitations on physical abuse. I appreciate your time and the thoughtful conversation Joanne, thank you. Thank you. Take care, bye-bye. Alright, let's get a Facebook scam warning from uh, Elizabeth on 6. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. How
16: are you doing?
1: I'm okay, how are you doing?
16: I'm not too bad. I was trying to get one of those scams.
1: Okay, tell us what you've seen. I, I I wonder
16: if it is a scam or not. What? Uh, I had a lady in two weeks ago for do some housework for me, as I can't do it myself. I can't get up on two I'm going scoliosis.
1: Okay, so what's the scam? Uh, I'm sorry.
16: Cleaning the house. I wanted her to come in to clean my house. I figured it would take two days to do it. And she charged me $700.
1: That sounds like an awful lot for our two days' worth of house cleaning.
16: Yeah, but she came in and she only stayed four and a half hours. Okay. And took my money.
1: Uh, well I'm not sure what to say so this is a local company uh, people will have you know reviews of whether or not this company does good work and they're reputable and they're trustworthy you know so I guess when people especially when we're inviting them into our own home is to make sure we know who we're dealing with so you paid her $700 if she was there for four and a half hours did the house get cleaned?
16: no only in places okay she didn't tell me well but she didn't go up to the ceiling like get out or anything like that, right? Okay. And But when I was talking to her on the computer, she said she did a lady up in Bjorn for $800. So I figured she was a good lady. Okay. So I asked her to come in because I can't do it. So how many more around in Mary's time is she scamming?
1: Well, people should be aware of who they're getting in bed with or who they're doing business with and whether or not the person or the company has a good reputation, uh, you know, like most of us have to when we deal enter into any of these types of arrangements. Uh, anything else uh, before we say goodbye, Elizabeth?
16: I, I called the cops, and I called two or four different places, and they were going to get back to me. Okay. But the cops said they couldn't do anything for me.
1: Yeah, I don't know if she's committed an actual crime. It might be... Uh, irresponsible and predatory, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to face any criminal action. Uh, too bad it happened to you, Elizabeth. Uh, so hopefully people will fall prey to the same person who doesn't live up to the monies charged. You take good care.
16: They say they I could take it to court, but I don't have the money for to do that.
1: Yeah, I understand.
16: So is there there's no one in, in Newfoundland that can give me a word or... or Say anything that I can get my
1: money back. Well, you can indeed go through the government at ServiceNL to make a complaint about any business that you've interacted with, so that's the one option you have. You can also put their name and make the Better Business Bureau aware of them. So those are the only two options that come with no cost. Mm.
16: Very
1: good. So I do that much. So if okay. you just go to Google, if you use a Facebook, obviously you have a computer, go to Google, just put in the Government of Newfoundland uh, Service NL, and they'll come to their landing page, and then you'll see on the left-hand margin a place to make a complaint about a business. Okay. Okay, good luck with Thanks. it. Let me know.
3: Thanks.
16: Thank
1: you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Final break of the morning. When we come back, a couple of callers want to talk about a couple of different uh, specific politicians. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Oh,
17: well, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not bad. You? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Uh, Patty, One calling about today there. <clears throat> I heard uh, you had Pierre poliet on your show there just over a week ago. It'll be two weeks this Friday, actually, and I... Uh, I really tuned into your conversation. I'm glad you had him on the show because he made total sense what he was saying in every aspect. And it seemed like he got an understanding of our country. He's listening to the people. And he's putting his format to the people saying this is what we got to offer. And I totally agreed everything he had to say and he, he made a lot of sense in, in all aspects when you look at
1: it in general yeah we didn't get too much in the way of the <clears throat> social conversation uh, because that's going to be part of the decision making process people entertain but there's some of it where I you know people will agree with one politician or another so be it it's you it's your vote it's your, uh, your uh, consideration to that we're talking about but some of the things are just straight up exaggerations though right like you know why ask him directly about groceries because it's a problem food inflation is not coming back to earth it's really not and people are struggling even folks who have two working professionals in the home the purchasing power for my dollar is really has really been eroded but he's you know he basically said all we need to do uh, for, to control the price of groceries is axed the tax, and that's the carbon tax. When, in fact, if you listen to the PBO or Stats Canada and the way they've deduced what carbon tax impact is on groceries, it's certainly not the settle and the solve that he says it is. So that's one of those areas where we're just going to have to get like people like Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer, to come on and help us break these things down. Because if we straight up simply and only listen to political campaign speeches, we're probably not going to get a clear idea of exactly what's going on. What you think
3: uh,
17: no I agree with you Patty that makes total sense what you just said there you got to get the people on your show and explain things that are should be dealing with this directly and I, I totally agree uh, what you're saying totally but I'm gonna add to the mix as well <clears throat> when you look at like everything's happening now high inflation interest rates uh, homeless people, housing, uh, manufacturing sector. Uh, Like I talked to an individual that uh, is in RV uh, trailers and they can't get enough people uh, to work even to uh, produce uh, trailers. That's just a good example. But all aspects of every sector is being affected. But when you look at the root cause of all this, is that when the federal government shut down the country due to COVID-19, this is what translated to everything that's happening today and is uh, not for the better.
1: But what did the and, federal government shut down? I think that we're also kind of uh, <clears throat> conflating two different things. For the large part, the uh, decisions based on what could stay open, what could not stay open, were made by prov- uh, provincial premiers, not by the federal government
17: well it was prov- well, yeah well, it was provincial but uh, yeah but they went by the guidelines of the federal government
1: but they didn't because every province did uh, somewhat differently
17: yeah yeah the i know we all got our uh, health uh, minister of health or whatever to make decisions but a lot of it was based on the federal level as well but but when you look at the root cause of it this covid-19 the canadian government was aware that this covid was going to come to this country and was nothing done about it until afterwards and then it went rampant as you know. And, and, and it's like same thing as uh, letting a horse out of the barn and then closing the gate afterwards. So my whole point is that when you look at the jigs and reels off it all, the federal government is responsible that cause what's happening today. And it's like if me or you or anyone makes a mistake, we got to own up to our mistakes and try to correct it. So in this case, the federal government is fully responsible for what happened because of the COVID-19 and what translated.
1: Yeah so what does that mean? Are we talking about <clears throat> the cause of inflation or what's the point you're making there?
17: Well the, yeah that's what we're talking about the, the cause of inflation, high interest rates, uh, the, the groceries, uh, every sector is, everything's going up and up in general and is because of the federal government where they didn't head off this COVID-19 And they knew it was coming to Canada And they didn't do nothing about it And then it went widespread And then
1: the rest is history How are That's we going cool. to keep COVID out of our country?
17: Well, How is they, that going to work? Did, well, well, you look at it in, in a way Okay, after it came here uh, Everything got shut down so, like I says, like letting a horse out of the barn, close the gate afterwards. But he had to know it ahead of time, they could have took better precautions and better strict measures to avoid to what happened. So, in actual essence, they are responsible, and I think, and and this is why we got high interest rates, inflation, groceries, uh, The list goes on. Uh, that is the root cause of it. So now. Try to fix the problem, man. We we we're in dire straits, here, and because of everything that happened, uh, that's the cause of it all. And so they're responsible, and they got to try to correct all the mistakes of what's happening in this country. Like, uh, uh, listen to a story there recently on the national. Gentlemen, paying a high mortgage and twenty-three dollars is actually going towards the mortgage. The rest of us all, because due to high interest and whatever, and this is all translated to to COVID nineteen. I'll go back to it, and the federal government was the cause of this. So now they're responsible for every aspect. Try to correct this situation.
1: Okay, well, I mean, governments have to take responsibility for what happens under their watch. I mean, no one can argue that particular point. Right, Uh, Daryl, appreciate the call.
17: All right, again, thanks, Patty, and
1: uh, keep up the great work, and all the best to you
17: and VOCM, and you're listening, audience.
1: You too, Daryl. Take care.
17: All right, thanks. All right. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. All right, last word this morning goes to line number one. Clyde, you're on the air.
18: Yes, good morning, Patty. I'll a shark there. No problem. Uh, I uh, sent you a few pictures a while back. I don't know if you remember. Uh, it was uh, on the road. Uh, it's from... Uh, Spanish Rim right to Rock Harbor. you got to come through Spanish Rim to get to Rock Harbor, right? And it's six kilometers. We had a meeting with MHA, and we did get a little bit of that quick patch, but very little of that. And uh, there's places there that got to be dug up and patched over, put something up. But we haven't been getting anything in the last three or four years. I even talked to the Deputy Minister of Transportation last year, and uh, they told me, well, it goes in priority how bad your roads are, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been helpful, I suppose, that the government has the old five-year road work plan, you know, giving wiggle room for things that go wrong, whether it be washouts or whatever the case may be. But, of course, re- regardless of where people live, they want their bad road at the, at the top of the priority list. When, of course, that's every region of the province would have the very similar thoughts on the condition of the roads.
10: Yeah, well, I
18: guess it's, uh, you know, like maintenance, because we haven't anything done anything on this road now and since we got it paved. Uh, there's a good bottom to it, but the other one uh, that we go through, really it's only six kilometres there, but at least you could see a bit of effort. Like, the Department of Transportation, that uh, because they are too busy, they shut down some of the depots in the springtime and reopened again in November when the winter comes on, right? So... I don't know if there's more they could do there. Just get the contractor to come in at least and patch up a few bad spots that we got. But uh, right now, I guess it's getting up to October, and uh, that season will be over. So hopefully uh, the next budget will put in uh, some better roads for uh, some other communities. Because when people come here, Patty, for uh, tourism, they don't come here just to drive TransCanada. They go to the off-roads and the beautiful communities we have in Newfoundland Labrador, right? Absolutely. You know, and you would enjoy that, driving over a better road than that to get there, you know what I
1: mean? 100%. It's not just Highway 1 that's the current concern. You're absolutely right.
18: And I haven't said all that, Patty. There is a lot of pavement going on up this way this year and that, you know, uh, to the general areas. But, uh, like I said, a few quick patches could have been there, because I know the contractors here. I've worked at uh, Flagging and with contractors here in of Peninsula, so... Uh, know all about how it goes and way it's done that, and a few pipes put in here and there and everything would be, at least show some effort, right? And the brush cutting, I think that's uh, I think they leave that to the fall of the year because when everything falls off the trees and that, you know, when it changes and that, it's a bit easier to do it
1: For sure, Clyde, that's simply because there, of the right? time on the clock, we're going to have to leave it there today
18: Yes, thank you very much, Paddy. You have a good day and everybody be safe. And hopefully we'll get a few uh, humps and bumps fixed.
1: Thanks, Clyde. Thank you, bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Clyde did indeed have the last word, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.